There is an inexorable force in the cosmos where time and space converge. A place beyond man's vision, but not his reach. It is the most mysterious and awesome point in the universe. Where the here and now may be forever. On my ship, you ask. It is unavoidable. Moving through space, swallowing everything in its path. Radio waves, light. Are you programmed to speak? Even planets and stars. I know, everyone's going to be like, what? Bar? Yes, OG again. I'll tell you, Dion. I'll tell you, you tell me what, Blake. Are we record? We are recording. <laughs> Let's make sure that we're actually recording. Yeah, we're recording. that's happened to me before. Yeah, and our voice is already October, shot. Last actually. It was, yeah. <laughs> I know, I just listened to the uh, spectacular Garfield Halloween special we did last year, and we referenced that I forgot to hit record on the gate uh, yeah, podcast for recording. Like 40 minutes. Yeah, and then about we the gate. we had to go back and yeah. start the show up. Huh. <laughs> that's what I, that green light is blinking for, or the red light. But we're recording now, and we're back again for the last, the last installment of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers October <laughs> Horror Movie Extravaganza. That's not, what I was gonna say. 2018. October's just not long enough. It flew, flew this year. It's flown by. Maybe because we've done them like six months apart. Well, <laughs> <laughs> we really didn't. <laughs> They're not supposed to know that part. We just had it. We have really <laughs> busy day job lives. We got a lot going on in our lives. So let's recap. Yes, uh, we started off October 2018 with a celebration of 40 years of Halloween. Yep, with Chicago's own Mighty Mike Vanderbilt. Mighty Mike Vanderbilt from the Daily Grindhouse yeah. website, among other things. Yeah. Then uh, I thought you were going to say 21 Pod Street. <laughs> And also co-host the award-winning, <laughs> hopefully soon-to-be award-winning Twenty One Pod Street podcast. When they start giving out awards for podcasts, for podcasts that only have like five episodes, yeah. <laughs> but hopefully that'll come back at some point. The following week, we uh, got in the DeLorean, we punched it to eighty-eight miles per hour, zoomed all the way to nineteen ninety-four. Yeah. To talk it about was it. A very <laughs> good year. When we were in 1994, we went in the DeLorean all the way back to 1818 to talk about Mary and Shelley's it, thing. And, and in some ways, we did a, an episode on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, as you were just saying, that was 
kind of more of a blast from the past for me anyway because I hadn't seen that movie in a yeah. really long time. Yeah, I hadn't <laughs> seen that movie probably in 15. Frankenstein. <laughs> I haven't seen that movie. <laughs> and, and we and then we heavily relied on the Mary Shelley's book, Mary Shelley book because that turned 200 this year. Yeah, so we were hitting we were kind of uh, vicariously hitting the bell on a 200-year anniversary. <laughs> Maybe the oldest anniversary we're ever going to celebrate on this show. Unless we hit Beowulf up. <laughs> then we're going to be going way down the alley. <laughs> <laughs> so far down that alley that there I ain't is, even paved there, yet. There is a Christopher Lambert movie based on Beowulf that we could tackle <laughs> at some point. I, I like the Zemeckis Beowulf movie. I'm sure there's earlier versions of we it. We do a double feature. Yeah, but we digress. So we hit the 200-year anniversary with Mary Shelley's Kenneth Branagh extravaganza. And then that we, was week two. And then we jumped back in the DeLorean. <laughs> punched, punched that shit to, 19, to 88 miles an hour again. Back to 1978. Went to 1978. We thought we were getting out in <laughs> Illinois, but we got out in, in, in Pennsylvania. Yeah, in, in semi-rural suburban Pittsburgh. Because we were looking for a quickie mall or a... We were looking for a. Uh, I'm stopping like I'm going to edit this thing. <laughs> <laughs> we were we were stopping looking for a, a convenience store that sold plutonium. So we went into a mall, and lo and behold, it was yeah, it was overcome by zombies, and it was Dawn of the Dead, George A. Romero's classic that set a bar. And right around this time, I should say to give a little shout out to the boys at uh, Four Brains One Movie Podcast. Right around the time that. Uh, Dawn of the Dead posted. Yes. You went out with In case them. you missed it, I also did an episode of Night of the Living Dead with them. So you can have twice the Romero pleasure. With Blake. <laughs> Blake's, Blake's hitting all your Romero pleasures, baby. But yeah, we hit up the, uh, the 40th anniversary of Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. So uh, we did a zigzag. 78 to 94. Back to 78. Yeah. And now leads us to today. And we're going to take that time machine back just a little bump. I think we got to start checking the tires. <laughs> back just one more year. Back something, to 77. Something arguably, if we wanted to celebrate the anniversary, we should have done last year. Yeah. But instead, we decided to do it this year because, partially because, or I should say partly because, there's a remake coming out in in a few weeks or a month or so. Yeah, for when this premieres, this date. So uh, we're doing a movie that... Uh, you know, surprising we didn't do already. Mm. Mm-hmm. We decided when we were going to do our first episode based on the Dario Argento movie, we went with the classic, Deep Red. Yeah, Profondo a- Rosso. A.K.A. Profondo Rosso. Yeah, probably my favorite Argento. And in some ways, we did kind of cover it because there was a crossover episode with Wrong Reel with the great James Hancock where we, uh, James and I crossed the streams. Yeah. We did uh, the two Argento trilogies. We covered the three the three mother trilogy, which this is part of, and we covered uh, the animal trilogy. Blake gets out of the house a lot, but uh, this was this gives us an opportunity for Dion and I to sit down and kind of dive into this baby a little bit deeper. But all those other ones than are ever before. <laughs> ever before. <laughs> those, those other ones are required listening, especially to get into the theory. The deep red one, I would say, is a definite. Oh, I meant the ones you did with uh, what's his face from the wrong yeah. reel. What <laughs> I would, wrong, like my dad would say, the wrong reel. <laughs> <laughs> what I would do if I were you, the listener, yeah. I would listen to our deep red episode. Profundo Rosso. And then I would listen to our Suspiria episode. Yes. 
And then if you want to- Which wanna, they're already listening to. <laughs> which they're listening to right now, so maybe you should pause it and go back. <laughs> or you can stay. Either way, you can listen to them out of order. I don't mind. But then I would say the Three Mothers episode that's also on here back from whenever that is. A year ago or so. It's a nice little like dessert. Yeah. Yeah. Little nice little after dinner drink. Yeah. <laughs> to this a little, little, little port. <laughs> so we're here doing now nineteen if we can, if we if we haven't already properly confused you all. We're Saturday night movie sleepovers. Yeah. Tonight we're doing uh a classic uh weekend at Bernie's. Oh yeah. no. <laughs> <laughs> Two <laughs> back to Jamaica. <laughs> we're doing uh Italian uh, Italy's Italian. own. Oh, this is gonna be. <laughs> oh no, we can't be getting into this. Was that Profondarosa that we did the Italian? <laughs> Probably. Because well, we also went back and we talked about that. We had a little talk about giallo. Giallo. And we um, explained the whole giallo genre. And for people who don't know what the giallo genre is, um, check you out know, our deep red episode. Check, check, check out our deep red episode. And I think also we talked about that we have a giallo. We have a giallo uh, sidecast somewhere, don't we? We might. Yeah. You might, you might, you might, you might, you might, you might. Would I be talking about a Giallo sidecast episode? You might, rabbit, you might. Um, you didn't, listeners. You didn't think you were going to get a, a, an Irish accent yeah, yeah. today. <laughs> Little did you know, Dion is shit, shit house drunk, <laughs> and is already thrown up. So he's good to go. You might, rabbit, you might. So we're doing Suspiria from 1977 this Suspiria. week. Suspiria! By the uh, maestro. Is he called the maestro? <laughs> sure, people have called him the maestro. Yeah, uh, Dario Maestro Argento. of the macabre. The maestro of the macabre. He's also been called the Italian Hitchcock. The Italian Hitchcock. Interesting. Um, uh, Dario Argento. So we're Dario. Dario Argento. Now, uh, we got to talk like those tapes in high school. <laughs> La Porta. <laughs> Cassette B, Otto, Oce, Allora, Andiamo. Suspiria is probably his most popular film for Americans. Yeah. The most We mainstream? talked a little bit about this in Deep Red, in the Deep Red cast, in that, like, Japan and Suspiria are what he's primarily known for in those places. So here and in Japan. We love Suspiria. That was he his other movies had played here, but that was what kind of put him on the map here. In Italy and other parts of Europe, Deep Red is kind of what he's best known for, as it should be. And uh, just a, the, the briefest of histories, uh, Argento was a, cr- a film critic uh, who grew up. His family was kind of in the film business, but he started as a film critic, then he started writing movies. He collaborated on Once Upon a Time in America by Sergio Leone. And uh, when he made his first movie, he decided to venture into the giallo kind of subgenre of mystery thrillers, which is a very Italian thing. Again, go back and listen to the Profundo Rosso cast, the Deep Red cast. And in a way... He had kind of reinvented and reinvigorated the Giallo with uh, Bird with Crystal Plumage, which was his premiere. That was kind of a subgenre of film that started with Mario Bava based on a type of book in Italy. And then so he did three out of the gate because of the popularity of uh, uh, because of the popularity of Bird with Crystal Plumage. He was asked to do another one. I think the second one, I could be getting the numbers wrong, but I think the second one is Four Flies in Grey Velvet. And then 
Cat and I Tales, which he doesn't like, and I guess most people don't like compared to the other two. But I love that. <laughs> I, I love all three of those. The the the, the th- his first three out of the gate. I I prefer my Argento early, so I like all his early stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know. And then he kind of I think he wanted to branch away from the Giallo, and he did a completely non thriller, non horror, uh, like historical period piece called Five Days in Milan. I think is the American translated, the English translation. That didn't do so well. So he decided to go back, and that's when he did Deep Red. Going back to that well. That's circa like 1975, I think. Yeah. And I think that he hits him right. That that hits it out of the park. Well, that's the thing is he kind of, he takes a little subgenre of Giallo, makes it super popular, explores it for a while, he stops doing it. It starts to die off a little bit. And then he does Deep Red and vamps it back up, kind of reinvents it completely. It's the first time he he works... It's the first time he works with the band Goblin. Uh, and that soundtrack literally became like a big seller in Italy. Like, it was a huge... Commercial. Yeah. yeah. Like commercially successful. And, and that's 75. Uh, and then... And we had just talked about Goblin a little bit in Argenta to a certain extent last week on Dawn of the Dead. Because yeah. Because he helped collaborate that in 78. Because Dawn, Dawn of the Dead was kind of their follow-up to this movie. Yeah. They did that. That was the next project they worked on after Suspiria. Uh, so he does Deep Red, huge success. He meets Daria Nicolodi. Female. Uh, an actress. Uh, and he starts a romantic relationship with her. Daria. They have a daughter named Asia. Yes. Some people might have heard of. And unfortunately, it's been in the news lately for some not so great things. But, uh, and it's Daria Nicolodi that kind of sparks, is that initial spark for Suspiria. If you listen to Dario talk about it, uh, if you listen to Argento talk about it, he, he'll, he'll never like mention her. <laughs> So um, we're to assume that they're not together anymore. No. They were together back then. They had a child. And partially, it's because of this movie in some ways. We should also mention that we have uh, uh, the forerunner of Argento knowledge with us. <laughs> I don't know if I'm that. Mr. J. Blake. But you're pretty, you're I'm pretty well, I'm well versed. Read. I'm well read on the, on the top. Yeah. Uh, Argento, like Carpenter, uh, is one of my favorite filmmakers of all time so this episode Dion's not gonna talk and he's gonna sit back and listen to Blake we're gonna get to Dion no no just no just give him a just give me a second <laughs> I don't wanna I'm setting the table yeah Dion. I'm setting the I table I talk too much all the time <laughs> I like listening to you talk uh, so Suspiria comes out I mean uh, their Deep, relationship Deep Red comes out he meets Daria Nicolodi on Deep Red She's in that movie. She's actually really great in that movie. Who's she in that movie? Forget. She's like the female reporter. Oh, okay. And there's all those funny jokes where she's in the car and his seat's much lower than her. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's Oh, I didn't even put that together. Okay. And uh, they form a a romantic relationship and... Her and Dario. Yeah. Daria and Dario. (laughs) (laughs) And she... I don't know if it's so much... I don't know if... This part could go either way. Argento could be like, I don't want to do another Giallo movie. Or Daria Nicolodi could be like, I think you should branch away from the from the Giallo movie and do something a little bit different. At the time, 
there's a there's a lot of there's a lot to unpack here, and I'll try to do it very uh, as quickly as possible because the the inspirations for Suspiria are many. Uh, two really big inspirations, and it's where Daria Nicolodi kind of comes in, is that she's reading a book by an author named Thomas De Quincey. De Quincey was an author of like the Romantic era, uh, a, a British author. He's, I actually just wrote a big thing about him <laughs> and and the piece that inspired Suspiria for for something. Uh, and this is the 1880s. Oh, I'm sorry, 1840s. Yeah, so he's he's, he's, a, he's born in 1785, and by the early 1800s, he he's uh, he's an opium addict. As you do, he's uh, in debt. We all were, <laughs> and he's an alcoholic because I am the way he ingested opium was in a cocktail of uh, laudanum and brandy. I won't have it any other way. <laughs> So much in debt that he, there was actually fa- uh, facilities in London where you could go and live where the debt collectors couldn't c- legally couldn't come and get you. And the one day you were allowed to leave the house was on Sunday because you weren't allowed to be arrested <laughs> on Sundays for that. Because they were civil. So uh, around this time, he's asked to r- write an account of his experiences with opium. And this is and this becomes his biggest his most famous work he he creates a work first as a thing of essays that were in uh magazines but then later published into a, a book called uh confessions of an opium confessions of an english opium eater and that brings him a, bu- a lot of wealth not wealth and that um, i think that may be a, a vincent price movie confessions of an opium eater Maybe it is that they not and everyone who listens to the show regularly knows I love Vincent Price, <laughs> but I don't remember that being a very good movie. Um, uh, I'm going to get a researcher to look on that. So I wonder if that movie is based on his. If it's, if it's called that, it must be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I said it brought him wealth. I don't think it. I don't think it necessarily brought him a lot of wealth, but it brought him a lot of fame, because at the time, especially in the Western world, places like Europe, people weren't writing about uh, drug addiction. Or drug habit, as it was called. 1962, yeah. Vincent Price, Confessions of an Opium Eater, uh, probably was one of those, um, you know, uh, English productions, maybe with Roger Corman or something like that. Uh, go check it out. I didn't care for it too much, and I'm a huge Vincent Price fan, but who knows? Maybe, you know. But yeah, he's playing um, uh, your man here, Thomas De Quincey. So De Quincey writes this book, and it's part. It's partially true accounts, partially a little bit dramatized. Um, but it becomes a huge hit uh, of the of the era, and it's the thing he's best known for. And sometime later, in that's like an eighteen twenty, maybe something like that. I don't remember. But later, he ends up writing eighteen twenty two. Is that? Yeah, maybe he wrote it. I think I think he wrote it for for like publication a magazine in like eighteen twenty two, and then I think it might have gotten published in a book in 1823, if I'm uh, not mistaken. But later he decides he's going to write a sequel to that. And so he starts writing a series of uh, short essays again, originally for publication for magazine, and the under the title Suspiria de Profundos. And there's one 
piece of the Suspiria de Profundos, which is most important for Suspiria. And it's a prose poem that's titled Lavana and Our Ladies of Sorrow. And in this prose poem, he kind of gives an account that he remembers, perhaps at university, that I don't recall. But as a younger man, he's remembering back as a younger man when he had an experience while on opium that he was visited by the Roman goddess Lavana. And Lavana brought these three companions, and he called them Our Ladies of Sorrow. And the Our Ladies of End, he talks about very poetically about, you know, like sorrow, you know, they came in three, like the mu- like muses. There was three. Like all, he lists all these things that were supposedly coming. Some good shit he was on. <laughs> <laughs> and he describes these ladies of sorrow as three sisters. And he names them uh, the oldest, Mater Lacrimarum, or the mother of tears. And he kind of explains that as being the mother of tears represents heartbreak or grieving. The middle sister... Uh, Mater Suspiriarum, or the mother of sighs, and that kind of she kind of signifies hopelessness. And then uh, Mater Tenebrarum, a mother of darkness, and she's kind of like depression. He talks about her like when she comes, like you kill yourself, kind of thing. And so uh, Daria Nicolodi is reading this piece, uh, the Suspiria de Profundos, and she says to Dario. Argento, wouldn't Suspiria be a great name for your next movie? <laughs> and um, Suspiria di Profundis, isn't that, uh, what does that mean? Sigh from the depths, or uh, Suspiria translates to yeah, sighs? Yeah, sighs, like, like Maitre Suburiam is the, is the mother of sighs. Yeah. So it's like the, like the, the sighs of, and Profundus is deep, like a deep red, Profundo. Almost Rosso. like so. The, uh, the 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 bridge of sighs in Venice. People used to go over to get executed. You walk over the bridge of sighs and you'd sigh because you're gonna get killed. <laughs> executed. So. so this kind of this is the this is the spark. This idea of she reads the story about the three mothers, and she says Suspiria would be a great title. Now, I think we take for granted, and if you rewatch the Suspiria now, you realize that the Suspiria isn't really so much about the three mothers. It's not really even mentioned. That doesn't really show up until the sequel, Inferno, in like 1980, where that movie opens with uh, a a woman reading a fictional book written by a fictional alchemist, where and it's, there's a very De Quincey-esque passage that she's reading, where he totally. He takes what De Quincey wrote in Our Ladies of Sorrow and twists it to be more, you know, to fit the movie. Now, is, is, is that the one that's Carl Molden? Who's in? That's, um, uh, no, uh, he's in Cat of Nine Tales. Okay. I'm conf- I don't think there's anybody, I don't think there are any actors in Inferno that are, like, name American crossovers. There I are, get all there's my Argento Amer- mixed there's, a, there's American actors in it, but they're not... Anybody not like John of, Saxon of or clout. you know like we yeah. had uh, what's his face uh, Donald Pleasance and you know a couple and of Inferno them. is 
that shit crazy. Oh yeah, yeah and yeah. probably boom. Yeah. <laughs> that's when she's swimming through the the, 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 <laughs> yeah. the room that's like a library. Yeah, it's crazy. And that's kind of beautiful. The, that's crazy. the sequel to this, yeah. and that's about Mater Tenebrarum, the Mother of Darkness. Yeah, which takes place in New York, right? Maybe yeah. the movie takes place in New York City. And that movie kind of explains. It opens the alchemist that she's reading is talking about like I was asked to. He was the architect of the three houses. Yes, and they yes. were placed one in. Freiburg, Germany, one in New York and one in Rome. And yeah. from those three key points in the world, they could control the world through through you know sorrow. And so the first Freiburg, Germany is we're alluding to Suspiria, yeah. where the dance So the Three is. Mothers doesn't become really part of the lore until Inferno. But it is still the original spark that gets the ball rolling. For Suspiria. For Suspiria. Now the other important part to Dara Nicolodi's uh, involvement is she ends up getting writing credit for it, share, shares writing credit for, for the movie. Because <clears throat> she tells Dario Argento this story that her grandmother used to tell her. And it's supposedly a true story from her... Bra- it's a piece of family history of her grandmother's uh, first account, like first-person account, which is her grandmother went to a uh, conservatory on like the German Swiss border. And if if this is the <laughs> 70s and she's talking about her grandmother, this had to be the early 20th century. Yeah, her grandmother apparently is a fascinating woman who was really great friends and like lived with Jean Cocteau. Jacques Cocteau. Oh wow. Cocteau <laughs> who's a big what is that? He's French, the French director. He's French, yeah. Who did uh with did a lot of like did he do um was a blood of a poet and Orpheus and the Beauty the French Beauty and the Beast which we talk about when we did Disney's Beauty and the Beast the, the cartoon. Yeah, yeah. But so she goes to this conservatory to study piano, and they studied all kinds of art performance arts there. And apparently, so the story goes, at some point during her studies, she realizes that this is the grandmother works. Yeah, of course, the grandmother that she—they're not just teaching music; they're also teaching the black arts or the, the dark magic. arts. Yeah, of course. And so her her grandmother flees the school in fear, and this is a story that she used to tell. Daria Nicolodi when she was a girl as a part of like Snow White or the Grimm's yeah. Grimm fairy tales you know that was one of the story but this was like a true story and for people who may not know Italians uh, are very religious to a large extent Roman Catholics Catholics so um, going back almost a hundred years you think about back then people were extremely religious you know doing their rosaries going to you know probably church more than once a week so if they were in a place where suddenly they were confronted with some the practicing the black arts or the black magic, of course they're going to run in fear because that's sacrilege to them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so this becomes the backbone of Suspiria. Yeah. Like this becomes an adaptation of that story where Susie Banyan is the character that's representing it for, for Daria Nicolodi, her, her grandmother. And Daria Nicolodi like entrusts Argento to tell this very personal story to, for her. Now, why then, um, in years since then, yeah, you said because they don't talk now. They're, they had some sort of falling out, like Dario t- claims to say that that story isn't true. Which so is, apparently, uh, you know, it's like so the story goes. <laughs> Again, this is all... Conjecture, yeah. yeah it's all uh, allegedly. But you find, I've found accounts online where people write about this saying that it's Dario's grandmother. Mm. So apparently, according to Nicolodi, during press for Suspiria in like 1977, Dario Argento kind of adopted this story 
as his account and that it was his grandma that did this. Were they, were they still together at the time? Like, uh, what's their relationship like, Daria and Dario? Apparently, it's very... Uh, it's always been... Apparently, it was always very passionate and... Tumultuous. Tumultuous, yeah. yeah. But apparently, this like put the, a nail in the coffin where she was like... She's to this day says like this. She'll never forgive him for this taking your or yeah. discrediting. Yeah, but apparently, I think by then they had Asia. Yeah, so um, they would see each other because of Asia, and then they they ended up getting back together for a short time, and then she ends up coming up with the story, the original story for Inferno, although she doesn't take film credit. She doesn't take a like writing credit, but she comes up with the original story for Inferno. She's in Inferno. She's in Tenebrae. She's in Phenomena. She's in Opera. These are all his later movies going into yeah. the lady. So she continued to work with him. Yeah. Even though they stopped even though like the romantically relationship, yeah, yeah the relationship the romantic relationship became straight and then eventually ended and she still continued to work with him the funny thing is when you and they had it was his baby's mama so he, they still saw each other for that yeah and the funny thing is like in Infer- in Deep Red she's a strong female character she's funny I don't think she, nothing happens to her yeah and then like as their relationship gets worse <laughs> He, Argento starts killing her and like making her like crazed maniacs and killing her like the worst ways. And I don't know if that's just coincidence. There's a um, I might have said this on the cast before, but uh, we had a teacher in in college. You know the story of like the back of your hand called Lazo Zaba, who was a uh, he was a um, where was he from? Uh, Hungary. Hungary. He was Hungarian, uh, and but he was in a lot of the French New Wave movies. He's in Truffaut and Godard movies, and he always played like, he had a name, Laszlo Kovacs. He's in Pierre Lafou. He's in uh, Alphaville. He's in like... He's got a big part in Alphaville. He's got a very short, like, little cameo in uh, Weekend. Weekend, uh, you know, but he always like, you know, I'm Laszlo Kovacs. So anyway, so he was our acting teacher in, in, in the first couple years of college. And uh, he took an interest in seeing our film. So Blake and I and everybody else would, you know, take him privately and screen the film, show him a rough cut on the editing bay. And I was showing him my film. My, my freshman film was a about a serial killer who was killing the, uh, prostitutes. And the prostitute at the time that I uh, cast was my girlfriend at the time because, you know, you have to find someone who will do the part and good looking. So I, 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 I um, uh, got her to do it and she gets killed in the bo- in the movie. So we're screening it and, and Laszlo's there watching. He goes, and he, he stops the, uh, the the machine. He goes, is that your girl? And I said, like, yeah. And he's like, it's funny. He goes, my friendly directors, they always kill their wives on screen. He goes, he goes they always kill them uh, for, for fake on, on film because the second time you kill them, it's for real. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, okay. I always found that funny that he says all his <clears throat> friends who are directors and stuff always kill their their wives or girlfriends on on screen. Yeah. But then the second time you do it, you're really killing them. So and uh, she comes back and uh, Nickelodeon ends up coming back and playing like a spirit in uh, Mother of Tears, which now, Argento ended up doing the third installment, the final. Yeah, what year is that? Two thousand something. I want to say seven because I've never seen that. And I, that surprised me researching this that I, I I thought for some reason like Phenomenon or one of those was the third installment of The Mother of Tears. No, it's confusing because Tenebrae sh- should have been the title of the third of the second one. It is because it's second, ma- right? it's Mater Tenebrarum, but Tenebrae ends up just being. Oh, I'm sorry, Inferno is the second <coughs> one. 
Yeah. And then ten- Tenembre is nothing to do It's just another Giallo. <laughs> yeah, and that's the one with... Um, that's got John Saxon in it. Yes, okay. And then Phenomenon has uh, Jennifer Connelly and, and Donald Pleasance. Yeah, they, now I'm getting my Argento, my ducks in a row. Okay. So that ends up... <sighs> That becomes a strain on the relationship. And also, Argento now says, and maybe then... That's the story of uh, co-opting the, the grandma story or not yeah. happen, whatever the heck. Uh, Argento also says that a very big part of the inspiration was a philosopher and social reformer, scientist, artist uh, named Rudolf Steiner. Yes, Rudolf Steiner. Who doesn't know Rudolf Steiner? An Austrian. Yeah. Who uh, lived from 1861 to 1925. And I don't really understand the anthroposophy. He's the founder of this kind of philosophy called anthroposophy. <laughs> Aposophy. Anthroposophy has something to do with the spirit world and how you can link it. You can kind of, you know, somehow link yourself to the spirit world and it helps you in other ways. Blah blah blah. I don't really understand it, so I'm not going to pretend to explain it. <laughs> and act like I know what I'm talking about. But most importantly for Suspiria, what he does is he founds a school. He's like, yeah, he was an Austrian philosopher. Yeah. Because like, yeah, also, too, in the early 20th century, uh, it was huge into the occult, huge into, like, you know, not just in entertainment. You'd have, like, the, 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 the you know, the, the shows at the time, but, you know, but you'd have seances, you'd have Houdini. Remember Arthur Conan Doyle's big in the occult? Mm-hmm. Isn't um, Huxley... Uh, you know, um, uh, what's his face? Uh, Crowley. You know, th- all these people are Mister Crowley. <laughs> that was almost, that was good, Daddy. You had the Aussie, uh, you had the Aussie uh, sound right there too. Uh, yeah, but they were so in the early 20th century, it was huge. The whole into people searching the occult out and all yeah. that kind of a thing. So to have like huge like philosophers talking about this stuff was common. And he found a school called the Wardall, Waldorf School. It's called the Waldorf School, and it's based on uh, Steiner's philosophies, and it exists today. And there's like, uh, and they're all over the world. It started as one school, and now it's branched out to a whole type of education for kids. And to this day, also people accuse it of teaching Satanism and paganism, and it being really a cult for. kind of indoctrinating children into like the dark arts yeah they say that they're they emphasize imagination and learning striving to integrate the intellectual practical and artistic development of pupils in a holistic manner yeah they don't think that yeah of course (laughs) but that's what that's they're saying but they're accused of that yeah and it's and dar and dario argento says that that's also partially uh inspiration and it's the existence of the Waldorf School and these and accusations. And you're saying that there's branches. It's not just there's this there's one like school. There's like 80 of them in America. Which is amazing. So it's not just like there's one school in New York that's getting, you know, it's like they've branched out. And they, it's almost like, um, you know, I don't want to uh, offend anybody, but it's like Scientology. And there's t- yeah, Scientology it's everywhere, it's but it's belie- like, it's you, like know. you know. I'm sure it has something. To, it's based on, te- you know, like philosophies of Steiner. And like you're saying, it has something to do with spirituality, blah, blah, blah. And I'm sure... That, you know, it's it's just it, I'm I'm sure that there's some kind of belief system involved. I mean, I don't I don't know if it's anti-religion, but they're talking about holistic and that yeah, kind of thing. You know, they don't. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think, and I would be surprised if it was what people accuse it of being. I think there's a this is a whole other story, but I mean, a whole other avenue. But I think there's 
misconceptions of people when certain uh, sects of people uh, or, or some people, when they talk about Lucifer, they're not always talking about the devil. Like, I think in some belief systems, like, he's the angel of light. You know, it's not, he's not a, a bad figure. It's, it's more the pagan kind <clears throat> of idea. Of, and of, I think <clears throat> yeah, that might be well, because where it, stuff gets confused, where people start thinking that, you know, they're teaching satanic rituals in, like, the dark sense when really they just have a different belief system. Um, I, I know around, like, you know. But I'm not an expert, so I'm. I, I read a book on Lucifer a couple of years ago, and um, which I think I t- we talked about one cast last year, or whatever. But it was a, it was not a print book, and I put a link in that cast to the book, and it talks about how like a lot of that pagan stuff was just like uh, you know you 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 work your ass off all day in your village, and you wouldn't leave your village in you know weeks and months, so you'd have like these monthly you know like a harvest festival or ritual where you just party your ass off. Uh, there could be a lot of um, um, not polygamy, but you know, maybe you cheer wives. Everyone's happy, having a good time. Yeah. But then, when the when when the church comes and kind of takes over and starts trying to push Christianity, they bring their belief system of heaven and hell and stuff. And then, so then, all of a sudden, you start getting like you're saying. Maybe there's a connotation of Lucifer to the people who don't believe in the church. But then, when the church comes over and they're saying, "Well, that means," so yeah. they automatically start saying that the pagans are, you know, it, what you're doing if you're celebrating the earth, giving you the or the crops and the you know the power, that sun and all that's that's devil worshiping. And you know, so the church ends up bringing their kind of um, format and you know putting it on there. So that's why all of a sudden now that these things may have other connotations, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, <clears> obviously, <throat> I, neither one of us are experts on it. And, it was here nor there. We're not and what little an opinion of anything. And just, what little I know about Satanism and Lucifer is from being a Ken Anger fan and researching Ken Anger 20 years ago <laughs> when yeah. we were in film school because <clears throat> he was a, a, he was a, a cult, Satanist, right? Satanist, I think. But, um, Scorpio rising and Lucifer I would rising. imagine that that's where some of the confusion comes off about the wall of the square, but really not knowing anything about the wall of the square, maybe they are just heathen. <laughs> yeah, they could be doing some crazy stuff. And but anyway, not, this is neither an endorsement nor a condemnation. <laughs> we're just we're laying it out there. You go do your own research. Uh, we don't want to get so, in trouble with anybody. So Argento says that that, that also inspires. What's well, how, how? The, why not? The it's school. Such a, such a fantastic in, idea. In Suspiria. And of course, the other and huge influence are child stories like Snow White, Alice in Wonderland, and in no small coincidence, um, the Brothers Grimm fairy tales. Yeah, German even, stuff. Even in the beginning, when she comes into the, ho- into the airport, there's a poster that says Black Forest, and that's yeah. supposedly. And when you see the girl running through the forest towards the beginning of Suspiria, it would, looks a lot like the Batman Forest and the Batmobiles going through in 1989's Batman. When Susie's in the in yeah. the, in the that's in the all taxi. supposedly the, the Black, Black forest, forest, which is the inspiration for a lot of where the Hansel and Gretel were yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, so the Black Forest is that evil place where like all the monsters and the Brothers Grimm stories kind of reside, and you know, watch out if you go into the Black Forest because you know something could get you. So now conceptually. <clears throat> Excuse me. We have covered the inspiration for Suspiria. Yeah. Where would you like to go next? <laughs> well, let's talk about your interest in Argento because um, you like to, uh, you know, you ask me questions when I'm into stuff. I'm, I'm, let's let's hear you. Uh, I remember you getting into Argento, and then because of you, I actually watched a lot of the Argento canon. Yeah. Um, 
not not that I need to say more than I needed to, but it's I I, I probably would have seen more than you would have had yeah. it happened for me. And uh, and I and I enjoyed all that. You know, it's not to say that I didn't. I thought they're great, and I still love like you and I. Think think the first time we watched maybe together the Four Flies in Gray Velvet or Blurred with the Crystal yeah, Plumage. Yeah, I think and we watched Stendhal Syndrome together. Stendhal for the Syndrome first time. trauma. All, most of them being you know bootlegs that we got at. VHS bootlegs that we got at horror conventions that we were there together. Yeah, or maybe the best video at the place in Connecticut. Get some us of the account. stuff. I'm sure we got from best you know, video. But so when we were when when Blake and I were discovering this, I think Suspiria was widely available to a certain extent, like because it was commercially up there. Yeah. But all these other ones in the late '90s, you you can't really find. So I remember like Four Flies <laughs> and Gray Velvet opening with the the drum, right, the snare drum, and you were like over the moon, You're like this is great. <laughs> we're getting ready to get you know. So like um. Uh, so I, I I was introduced to him through you, but I don't remember. It's the same time as us getting like into Fulci. Yeah. Do you remember how? I know exactly how I got into Fulci. How I got into Argento. Oh, Fulci's because of uh, Quentin Tarantino's book. The Quentin book. Tarantino yeah. book. And then Which us, we talk about on the R- Reservoir Dogs cast and the cast we did on Fulci's Zombie. Yeah, because I knew of it through this book about uh, Quentin Tarantino. And then we found a copy of Anchor Bay's like new clamshell widescreen released the day before at like record implosion which is no longer there a record store that had dvds hard to get cds music in the city and i remember looking at it like holy shit this is that movie yeah that quinn tarantino talks about in that book because the iconic (laughs) cover of of the zombie on the cover yeah now also in that same chapter he talks about opera Argento's opera. Oh, uh, yeah, a couple of Argento movies. But the notion of a zombie res- wrestling a shark is what captured my imagination. Of course, <laughs> of course. And always stuck with me. Uh, for me, Argento, uh, I think, began with one of two things. I think the it's either renting Two Evil Eyes from Captain Video. Yeah. It's a place of hose New York. <laughs> yeah, we finished each other's sentences. That's a place where Blake, where he grew up, that was a Captain. It was his local video store. Two Evil Eyes is a collaboration. George A. Romero, who just came over last week for our Dawn yeah. of the Dead cast, did that. Was that the second uh, maybe collaboration? They did Dawn of the Dead together, seventy eight, yeah. and then they did Two Evil Eyes, and it's uh, I would say it's ninety two, maybe. Yeah, early nineties, based off of Edgar Allan Poe. You have two stories. One covers one. One covers the other. The first story is the black cat, which it has. I actually uh, think the first story is the cat Romero's. case. The case of Doctor um, Amad um, Shivago. No, not that, it's, <laughs> it's the strain. It's the it's the curious. The, oh, it's a great uh, yeah, the case it's a great of Poe story. Uh, what's his name? Uh, I think it's the guy from uh, Harry Potter. What's his name? The, the word that cannot be said. Mister Amat Amato. Yeah, a Mister. The case of Mondesante, <laughs> but it's that's the that's the Romero thing, and then the second story was set in Washington D.C. Right, D.C. area. I think so. the Black Cat, and it's got Harvey Keitel, which is a great get because at the time Harvey Keitel wasn't wasn't getting a lot of great work, and he had hadn't rebound yet in Reservoir Dogs. Uh, like a, a year or two later, I think there's a um, a Tom Savini cameo in that, but Tom Savini does all the special effects mm-hmm. for those movies. So you came to it looking for that. To I realize. think I rented that with somebody. Well, so, the, the strange case, I think it's the, the case of Dr. Voldemort. Yeah. M. Voldemort. And I, isn't Voldemort the name of the gentleman in Harry Could Potter? Be. Sounds familiar. Yeah, okay. So, great, great story if you haven't read it. Short story takes place up in Harlem. Um, and I would say that it Bum. took me until recently to appreciate the Romero half of that. Yeah. Um, in watching it, 
at the time I didn't like it and I didn't like it forever because I only watched it the one time and then always skipped it to yeah. get to the original stuff. But I watched it a couple of years ago when I was doing a discussion of George Romero's films for uh, Wrong Reel. And I really like the Romero half now. Yeah. It, it's very, it's a very great little like creep show. Like a little, you know, like a story. little, like a little yeah. extra, like you could tag it onto the end of creep show and, you and would, it wouldn't be, feel too out yeah. of place. It's got, um, Tom Atkins yeah. and Adrian Barbeau, and also the great guy, special effects. I forget the actor's name, but he was he was a he was a favorite, the older guy who's in the bug one. Oh, uh, oh J T Walsh. Emmett. Uh, uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, well, what's his face? Who's yeah? Who's in the bug one? Who's in like uh, the Twelve Angry Men? Yeah, 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 yeah. He's also in it, so it is like this little homage. Because Romero loved working with him in the original Creep Show, yeah. So it's it's it is his part of Two Evil Eyes is like this little homage to Creep Show, which I didn't really appreciate until uh, you know more recently. Yeah. So you so you sought that out, Two Evil Eyes. So I that- saw Two Evil Eyes and the Argento part, even though like nobody ever talks about it. I don't even know if anybody else likes it. It just fucking blew my mind. Oh, I loved it when I saw it. Great special effects. I mean, like. Um, Kaitel gets like a butcher knife through the freaking. Oh, he, uh, no, his, he does that to his wife. Oh, does he? She do? puts her hand up to stop it. <laughs> it goes right. It's. Uh, it looks like he really does it. It's just some crazy crap in that. And then the next one I saw, because my trajectory obviously was very different than most Argento fans, American Argento fans that usually see Suspiria first. Yeah, I'm seeing like all the ones that nobody talks. <laughs> I saw Two Evil Eyes, and this is before he was even popular. Well, that's, I mean, you know, that's part of the thing is, you know, I don't want to sound like a crybaby or like I'm complaining, but there was something, and Dion knows this about me, there was something to, there's a little bit of like disappointment in me nowadays where I look and I see the love for everything else. I love that they're getting recognition, people yeah, like Argento and Carboner. Yeah. But as far as like, I kind of liked it better when I was the only guy that yeah, liked it. I, I, yeah. <laughs> that's like when like, you know, I was, you and I used to listen to Ray Charles and Ray came out and then ever so, all of a sudden everyone's a Ray Charles aficionado. It's like, well, I was listening to him 10 years before. Or just, you know, now with yeah, Mr. I mean, Rogers. we're talking about the late 90s. Yeah. So this is before DVDs. I brought up Mr. Rogers a couple weeks ago. I was like, you know, I used to love Mr. Rogers. Now everyone loves Mr. I was like, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> come on. I mean, I was, you know, but it's, I mean, that's either here or there. We sound like, uh, you know, uh, doofuses. There was it. something kind of nice about being, because in a lot of ways, the things you like are your identity. Oh, they're your own. Yeah. And then that, now know? suddenly everybody's like. When everybody else has that identity too, you don't feel as special anymore. Yeah. Uh, but the second thing I saw was uh, uh, the American cut of opera called Terror at the Opera. And what year is that? I want to say that's like 80. It's like late 80s. Because you're talking about uh, Tarantino bringing that up in that book, too. Is they got Robert England, or that's Phantom of the Opera? No, that's Phantom of the Opera. Okay. And that has nothing to do with Argento? No. Okay. Never mind. Uh, although Argento did, in like the 2000s. Did not not Rudger Howard Julian Sands. Okay, I'm he sorry. does an adaptation of Phantom of the Opera later, uh, but opera. So I buy at like the bargain bin at Coconuts Music. I buy a three dollar VHS cassette of Terror at the Opera, <laughs> and so those are my two entrees into Argento. And then through just knowing the people that we knew, other students in the film program getting into Argento and then suggestions get made oh well that if you like him you gotta see Suspiria and then you gotta see Deep Red so then it just kind of opens the floodgates yeah and, and then by the, and then that's when you and I 
cut to you know we we, we sought out the, the 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 animal trilogy and we saw the later stuff the Stenhall syndrome and trauma yeah, we started Tra- trauma 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 I keep saying like trauma like trauma pictures and trauma's got uh, his daughter Asia Asia yeah and Piper Laurie and Frederick Forrest and um, what's his face too. Um, uh, uh, from well, oh, Brad Dereef. Yeah, Brad Dereef. You know, great. That's a great little movie too. I remember. Oh, I, I, that's another one that I in Argento's catalog, in my opinion, is totally underrated because yeah. nobody ever talks about that movie, and I love that movie. You see, I love. I'm a huge Argento fan. I love. I prefer his older stuff. Uh, and the, but then that said, I like his stuff all the way up until the mid '90s. I mean, the Stenhall syndrome is like late '90s, and has got some. You know, period CGI in the time, uh, yeah. which I don't know if it holds up now, but I still enjoyed that movie. It's only recently the stuff he's done I didn't really care for in it necessarily. Yeah, yeah. You know, the thing about art is that it just it either speaks to you or it doesn't. And for some reason, Argento's stuff just always spoke to me. Like I connected with it on some level, not necessarily a level that I totally understand and can verbalize. But when I taught the horror class, the history of horror class at SUNY Purchase, I would show Suspiria and I would always kind of warn my students that you might not like this. I mean, it's going to speak to some of you and it's not going to speak to some of you because I have friends. I have big horror friends. Like Dave doesn't really like Argento. I mean, he doesn't hate him, but it just doesn't yeah. connect with them. And I would often warn my students when you watch an Argento movie, sometimes the best thing to do is to not worry about plot or what's happening on screen. You can't necessarily watch it in the same way that you would watch, a, you know, a blockbuster movie or any other kind of movie. You know, sometimes you just need to let it wash well, over it, you. It's kind of like going back to that the uh, the giallo idea that we talk about in the um, Profondo Rosso cast, where it's the it's a style, it's a way of filmmaking that they do in Italy so it's like kind of yeah. like it's different uh, profoundly from ours so but even more so totally yes our giallo movies those kind of thrillers those Italian thrillers uh, where you know loose on plot visual stylization uh, montage music you know crescendoing yeah. are their own thing yeah Argento takes it yeah. takes it from that but totally makes it his own and becomes a whole different thing. And Argento's films and probably Suspiria and Inferno out of all of Argento's movies are the most this, which is that Argento's movies are very visceral. Almost like music videos. And you can't really, you know, the plots are all basic. Most of the plots are all the same. Suspiria has the same basic plot as uh, A Bird with Crystal Plumage, Cat and I Tales, uh, maybe not so much Cat and I Tales, but definitely Four Flies and Great Velvet, Deep Red, which is that somebody witnesses something and then spends the rest of the movie trying to figure out, like, what, going back in their memory, like, there was something about it that they doesn't missed. make sense. Yeah. And then they become the amateur detective. Which is very giallo, like you said, like we yeah. talk about, you know. And it's in like, some ways, you know. They do that in Deep Red, too. It's always that something like yeah, that. The, 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 he witnesses the murder in the Deep star. Red. star. And he's David Hammond, I think his name is the 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 jazz piano player, witnesses the murder, and then he spends the rest of the movie trying like there was something about it that doesn't make sense. And they don't realize Bird Crystal Plumage is the that same they way. see a key that they don't until the third or the yeah, fourth reel. The, the revelation, re- yeah, like I, I know I, and then this is what happens here at the beginning. Yeah, she was. I, 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 she's <laughs> saying something, and then we realize it's something. You know, which is um, interesting. I mean, it even goes back to like. 
you know, like it's like the Hitchcock. I mean, I don't, I don't really know for him if there's a Hitchcock movie that kind of does that, but. It no, is, but Hitchcock had his own thing. Yeah. And also this idea of an amateur detective is very noir. Oh, very. And then, yeah, and it's very uh, Hitchcock with, like, you know, uh, North by Northwest or the man who knew too much, people who it get is very much the wrong the, man, you know. It's very much in that in that tradition of Hitchcock. Maybe not exactly with the idea of mem- remembering something, yeah. but the idea of a normal person, everyday Joe, everyday gal, yeah, being thrust into this plot. Where they witness something, where, where they're, they're in over their heads, yeah, they they're need to accused ca- of a they're, crime. They're trying to figure it out. Yeah, trying to either, you know, uh, clear their name or write a or wrong. figure out the who the killer is, yeah. and then figuring out the killer is clear their name. Yeah, so it's very much in, in that vein. Um, and so once you understand that most of those movies, most of Argento's movies have that plot line, yeah. like you don't need to focus on the plot. So, <laughs> and that's something like uh, you know we noticed that there are directors who meditate on you know Michael Mann has stuff he likes Argento of uh, um, Romero uh, Carpenter. There are things that you watch enough of these directors, Steven Spielberg, that you can start to see these broader themes re uh, reappearing. I guess my main point is that if you're if you're someone who's like a stickler for a tight script. And that everything's going to make complete sense. Mm. Then Argento's probably not the best filmmaker. <laughs> He's not for to, you. to look at. Yeah. I mean, it, Inferno has always been one of my favorite Argento movies. For the longest time, I called it my my favorite Argento movie, and now I'd say it might be second to Deep Red. Mm. I mean, everybody loves Suspiria and gets on my hat, gets on my back that I like Inferno more than I like Suspiria. Doesn't mean I don't love Suspiria. Yeah, and just something about Inferno. And even though it was my favorite Argento movie for a long time. It took me 10 viewings to know, like, oh, those are two different actors. That's two different characters. That's not even the same person. <laughs> it's for, you know, for Inferno. I was, yeah, I yeah. was just, like, completely confused. But it wasn't... It didn't bother me that I didn't really understand what was happening because that movie is completely off the wall, yeah. shit crazy. And in a lot of ways, I feel like, especially from a visible, visu- from a visual standpoint... Argento tries a lot of things with Suspiria, and I think that Suspiria is very much like the dress rehearsal, and Inferno's where he fine tunes what he's trying to do, visual wise. Because yeah. everybody talks about how amazing Suspiria looks, Inferno looks just as amazing in my opinion, but a lot cleaner. You know, like yeah. it's more like he perfected it. Yeah, it's more fine tuned. Yeah, uh, and I really appreciate that about Inferno. So Argento's just someone that I've always find completely fascinating. I, you know, I've read. Almost every book there is to you can find about people like Argento and Don John Carpenter. One like Dion's this way too, and I think most people that are fans, collectors, you know, especially in things in pop culture like music and movies. Once we find something we like, it's like we're on then on a mission to know everything. And you ended up writing there is, a book there about is, it. There is to know about that topic yeah. you know that person of course and so Argento is someone that you know even the stuff in more recent years that people shit on I know and I understand why people shit on it but I don't dislike it as much as everybody else does Yeah, I don't necessarily love it but I often think that had somebody else directed this you wouldn't be as critical on critical it or, or, yeah. of it as it being Argento. You know, yeah. that's not to say all this stuff. I mean, it's hard to defend Dracula 3D. Yeah. <laughs> but there are things about Dracula. With Roger Howard. 
which does have Rutger Hauer. Yeah. But there are things about that movie that I do kind of like, and I get that he, you know, he's just. And that's an instance where, like, he doesn't really give a shit what anybody else Well, it, it's something we brought up, I forget when we did it, maybe for Halloween, the podcast this year, or maybe it was uh, Frankenstein with talking about De Niro, or it's like people, you know, you, you shit on, people can't be on top forever. Yeah. And it's hard, like, you take it Stanley Kubrick, who only made, like, ten films, or Quentin Tarantino, but people who, you know, really have a good output... You know, it's hard for them to stay making groundbreaking masterpieces every outing. You know, it's yeah. like they may come out of the gate with some really classic genre-defining or pioneering movies, but then uh, it's not... And this is with acting, too, or actors and thespians. It's, it's like, you know, these auteurs, and then you start really being really critical in their latter half of their career, where it's like, well, for 50 years, 30 years, <laughs> they've been putting out some amazing stuff. I've just watched an interesting interview, oddly enough... It was Norm MacDonald. He's got a show on Netflix right now. Yeah, yeah. And he was interviewing M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah. And they talk about this thing of, because it's that way with musicians. You know, you can, uh, people say whoever. Yeah. Clapton, Elton John, Billy Joel, whoever, whoever's your fancy, uh, Sabbath, whatever it is. The earliest stuff was better. Yeah. And I think part of it is that you just connect with it on a certain way. And partially why you don't connect with the other stuff is you. Yeah. You know, like you change. Yeah. And they change. And then you guys end up drifting apart, you know, the whoever it is you like their and their work and then you. But and my channel made, made, I thought an interesting argument, which is he f- thinks he has a theory that when you start out in your career and you're young, you rely more on instinct because you don't have the technical capability yet. Like, you don't have the experience under your belt. Prowess. So you end up relying a lot more on instinct. And as you do more work, more music, more movies, your technical prowess, your experience with it starts to get bigger. And then eventually you start relying on that and less on instinct. Yeah. And pretty soon, like, you're just not relying on instinct anymore. And you just have now made a million movies. And now you're just relying on, like, that part of your brain. Yeah. And the instinct. And it's finding, you know, sometimes it's their first work. And that's where it's all instinct. But sometimes people's best work is often that point where that, that balance is just right. You have just enough technical experience under your belt and know how. But you're still relying on that instinct, and when that balance is just right, is when the most magical work comes from. Yeah, and of you course. could maybe argue that like Deep Red, yeah, and Suspiria are that point for Argento. Yeah, I certainly think so. You know? Where everything's just right, and then Tenebrae is still great, Inferno's still great, and then suddenly that balance yeah. be- it starts to become off. And then by the time you get to the '90s, it gets further apart, and then the 2000s. It, you know, I think that I n- never thought of it that way, and I don't even know if I necessarily agree with it. But I think it's a fascinating. It's way a, to yeah, look it's an at interesting it. argument or uh, or uh, uh, idea or theory to put out there. It's I just in recent years it just irks me when people say, for example, a Pacino or De Niro. Sure, you know, and I was it's just like, having this conversation with my dad. Last oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's like people are like, you know, well, they're just mailing it in now. But it's like, well, but they've done so much. It's hard to, to not, you know, become that parody of yourself. And if some people can pull it off, there's some people who have been able to have these epic careers, like a Spielberg or people, you know, like a Scorsese. But it's like hard to, 
at some point, you're going to run out of steam. You're going to do everything you wanted to do, and then you want to keep working. You start doing stuff to yeah. just like, Sometimes okay. it's just that like they have kids, yeah, and they start making family films because yeah. they want to make stuff that their kids will see. They don't want to make Raging Bull anymore yeah. or, you know, <laughs> or, you or know, like you know, sex comedies. They want to. Yeah, or, or what's the name of that movie? Uh, the Harlem Nights, like Eddie Murphy. He wants to make more of like Disney movies, you know, and then people get mad at that. So it's, um, it's interesting. I mean, Argento in Italy... Uh, which we've talked about in other casts, is probably as big or comparable to like a Spielberg here, where he's yeah. like a phenomenon. Da, da, he really da, da. is. That, that's when I ask Italians from Italy about Argento, that's the that's the the comparison they make. That yeah. he's the he's the Spielberg because he's doing like reality shows, or he's a judge on like a like a like a talent yeah, show or whatever, famous, or a cooking show. And I think might be partially why he's compared to Hitchcock, and that Hitchcock made himself and was one of the first directors to make himself a presence. He did the trailers for his movies where he would walk people through the cycle house yeah. and go, oh, this is where this is. It's genius because people are... <laughs> and I mean, he made himself a character. Yeah, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. He had 10 years of doing great thing where he would, uh, you know, do the the, the, the bookend of the show. Yeah. You know, that, and then that's, you know, Walt Disney did that. Like, you want to be the showman, the P.T. Barnum. You want to get out there and be the, you know, and people connect with that. And, you know, he did a show called... Is, um, Argento. Argento did a show about... I forget that was Beyond the Doors of Darkness or something. I forget the name of it. He did a series where he presented these stories. He directed one, and then other people directed other episodes. Like in like a Ross Serling kind of yeah, a and they were like little Giallo things. And then I think in the '90s or in the 2000s, there was an Italian show called Giallo, and he was the host of it. Yeah. And so, and he goes on and he talks about you know soccer or football. Uh, on sports shows, you know, he, <laughs> yeah, but he's passionate, yeah, because he's a regular guy. He's hugely famous, yeah. in Italy. I mean, he and it's crazy to think that you know we know Spielberg. Sure, he made Jaws, and you know, produced things like Poltergeist. But mostly, it's like you, you can understand why Spielberg's huge because he made Indiana Jones and E.T. like family friendly, yeah. Or had a hand in almost all the significant things in the 80s, 90s. Yeah, Goonies and, you know. Who Framed Roger Rabbit. All kinds of crazy stuff. Tour de Force. Yeah. But yet Argento is just as popular in Italy as as, uh, as Spielberg is here. But Spielberg ain't doing stuff like that. And yet he makes all his movies, aside from Five Days in Milan, are really, like, edgy, grotesque. Yeah, <laughs> gross out horror movies. <laughs> you know, horror movies you know. or really kind of brutal murder thrillers. I mean, some of them are certainly like like uh, grotesque for du- grotesque sake, like those some of these killings in these movies. Are oh, like, yeah. I mean, it's, it's very, you know, it's very, it's not taking, outlandish, but it's stylized. level for yeah. him. You know? Like for me, I, I know people love Suspiria, and this is the crossover. This is the people, the one people cite when you hear a Dargent. Have you seen Suspiria? And I don't care for it as much as I care for his other work. I mean, I love his earlier stuff. I love Deep Red. Well, when we saw Suspiria. Do you remember that when we saw it? I don't remember the first. Because that might have been the last time I've seen it. I mean, I own it. No, because I own it. I own that limited edition box set that came out in 2001 with the movie, the making of, and then like the soundtrack. That uh, was 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 either Blue Underground. Blue Underground, yeah, Anchor Bay, Blue Underground. And... uh, that was the first time it hit DVD. Yeah. But, I mean, when we saw it, like, it was maybe the movie on a movie, uh, greatest horror movies of all time list that was, like, their edgy European pick. 
Yeah. You know, and most people hadn't seen it. Or it just didn't make those kinds of lists then. Yeah. You know, but it would be like, if that showed up on a list, you'd be like, oh, like, this is a list worth looking at. I mean, <laughs> you, you know, it's, but now it's, you know, it, it, the soundtrack is always like number two behind Halloween as the greatest horror movie soundtrack of all time. Suspiria is on everybody's list of greatest horror movies of all time. It's being remade, right? I mean, it's been remade. It's coming out very soon. I mean, Suspiria in the last 20 years or so since we first saw it has grown in at least American popularity. I think it's like because tenfold. I think it's because of the the advent of uh, the internet. Yeah, and, and you totally. know because for us when we were at the age in high school and into college trying to it, it was very hard to find these movies. We'd have to go to a specialty video store like a Blockbuster. You might find Suspiria at a Blockbuster, but you couldn't find any of the other or stuff. A, a Jap- you know? Or a VHS bootleg of a Japanese laser disc. Yeah, from at a, a convention. convention. You know, so it was very hard to find this stuff because uh, I don't know why, but American audiences, um, you know, like I think all over the rest of the world, foreign audiences are used to seeing foreign product that is not their own, so they can watch stuff subtitled. Where for some reason, mainstream American audiences can't watch stuff that's subtitled or even with an accent. And let's face it. The only way you could see stuff back then yeah. was in a video store. And or only, going to and, like a... a there's only so much vid- like shelf space. Yeah, and the, or you go to, or you live in a major city and they're doing like an or art house. Some kind of retrospective yeah. art house. So, theater, yeah. you know, and, or like in our sake, when we went to a film uh, school, uh, you know, our teacher was educating. They, they had copies of it because they teach it every but year. But most people, no. So you would didn't go know. to either the mom and pop store, which is typically pretty small. Yeah, and you wouldn't have that. This or stuff. blockbuster that wouldn't have this. Wouldn't kind of stuff. you know? So you'd read about it in a book or a magazine, and you'd have to really strive to kind of find it. And then if you were to stumble across it, it'd be a crappy copy or whatever the heck, because it just wasn't readily available. There wasn't this demand for it. But now, because of the advent of the internet people getting together and then oh, yeah. just stuff getting I more mean, popular. I, I talk about it a little bit in my, at the top of my book, which is that the internet changed everything. I mean, we've had this discussion yeah. on the show, so I don't want to go too far into it, but it did. It not only made things accessible in a way that it never was before through things like Amazon and eBay, but it also like message forums, which aren't as big now as they were 10 years ago, 20 years ago. were, were places for people to culminate and with like-minded and like interests to go to like a horror movie forum and say like, Hey, I like this too. And have discussions with people that never happened before. You were like one of maybe three people in your high school. That was not Dion specifically, but you know, in a, in a non <laughs> in a hypothetical sense, you know, you could be one of like two or three people that were really into horror movies yeah. in high school. And that was the only, those other two people were the only people you knew yeah, you could that talk were to into it. it. Yeah. Now, you know, you could talk to somebody in another country live yeah, through the internet. And, and I think that it united fans in a way, which is in some ways makes it possible for Marvel movies, comic book movies to now be plentiful and the most, you know, uh, profitable movies today. It makes it possible for, Walking Dead to be one of the most popular shows on television. It united like the geek culture in a way that it never was before. And then once companies realized you can make money off that, this. that this is very you know, nostalgia, which is why this show exists. Our show, yeah. And the geek culture, if we could tap into that, we could make a fortune. Yeah, and it's kind of also thrown 
other tried and true uh, products to the side where with you know with like you're talking about these Marvel movies now where other sh- movies you would think would get popular releases and get good press now people aren't really interested or studios aren't interested to make them Blake you know what I want to talk to you today about hot dogs close TiVo <laughs> Well, I love TiVo, so let's talk about it. There's no better way to watch your favorite shows, movies, sports, and news than with this sweet baby right here. The TiVo Bolt Vox for cable, or if you're not a cable user, the new TiVo Bolt OTA for over-the-air antenna users. TiVo is the Emmy-winning pioneer of home entertainment. And while they still have the amazing Bolt Vox for cable, they are now bringing that paid TV experience to antenna users. And that's amazing, because as we've stated on the show many times, we love watching antenna-based television. In the bedroom, all I watch is the antenna, and this has revolutionized my bedroom TV watching. Just like with my Bolt Vox for cable, now I can scroll through channel guides, I can skip commercials with a click of a button, and even watch shows 30% faster with pitch-corrected sound. Plus, now I can get all my live TV, my DVR-recorded shows, and all my favorite streaming channels all in one place. And with one search, I can easily find all my favorite shows and have them displayed on one simple screen. And it tells me if it'll be on TV, or if it's on Netflix, or Amazon Prime, or HBO Go, or Hulu, or Vudu, and it's all accessible with one remote. Blake, you know what I love about the one search? What's that? Now you can use voice command. You don't have to scroll through and type stuff letter by letter anymore. You can just hold down the voice command button on the remote and tell TiVo what you want to search for and it finds it for you. Plus, TiVo allows you to access your content on the go and everywhere. From your TV to your mobile device. And now TiVo has put together a deal just for you, the Saturday Night Movie Sleepover listener. You could save 20% off any TiVo Bolt OTA or TiVo Bolt Vox for cable. Just head over to TiVo.com slash SAT20 and remember the promo code SAT20. Absolutely. Save 20% by going to TiVo.com slash SAT20. And remember the promo code SAT number 20. So uh, it's, it's, it's very interesting. And Suspiria is often cited as the, you know, his his you know grandiose yeah is, is this is biggest, considered by you know at least and for american audiences and, and i guess so i've heard japanese audiences this is his masterpiece yeah and, and you I can w- see a lot of that's you know for japanese and it's not something i would certainly argue no and you know i think one thing that's interesting about it is that this is his first movie that isn't italian and what i mean by that is it doesn't take place in italy yeah as far as we know, some of the girls, some of the ballerinas could be Italian, but it's never mentioned. None no. of the characters are Italian. Yeah. You know, it takes place in Germany. You know, the... And this is also not one of his other uh, Giallo brand where it's a killer, ma- male or female, yeah. that's in hiding with a knife. This is more supernatural. But I wonder or... if partially why it's more famous internationally is because it's his first movie that's not so Italian. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yes, the protagonists in his movies were often or always American. Yeah. <laughs> up until now. But, like I said, this is the first one where it's not shot in Rome or Turin, you know, and... Uh, or it takes place, you mean, but they shot yeah. it there, but they, they, they... Yeah, it doesn't yeah, take place. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the setting the, isn't there. So I, I wonder if that has something to do with it. Well, it's a bigger scope, too. It's kind of like, you know, I think it's it might be a little more accessible because of that, that it's... It's a supernatural kind of idea where it's... It, well, you can see that. why. If you, if, 
and and I don't mean this in any kind of negative stereotype, but if you look at the kind of Japanese was, horror yeah, movies that yeah, came out in the yeah late nineties, early aughts, yeah, that we associate with like the Japanese extreme horror, yeah, things like you know Jew on the Grudge or Ringu, yeah, or One Missed Call, all those types of things, you could totally see why a Japanese or even not even in the nineties, like that crazy movie House. You know, from I, I want to guess the eighties, maybe I saw it at a screening. That movie's off the hook. Which one is that? What's his faces? No, it's not the. I'm thinking of Visitor Q. Yeah, no, no, no. Okay. it's not Kashimiya Gates. It's, yeah. it's like a, maybe late seventies, but I want to say it's like early eighties. Yeah, it's hard to tell from the film stock of, <laughs> of Japan. <laughs> the, yeah. The, I can judge a movie by the, way, the visual aesthetic of the film stock. Oh, this is from the seventies. Yeah, this is from the eighties. It's hard to tell when you get into a foreign uh, market. Or what? Yeah, because the f- they're using different forms of uh, film stocks, but. Uh, but you can tell why Suspiria is probably very big there. Yeah, very Just because, like, obviously that's the kind of... Those, by judging by the movies they make in horror, that, you know, they're they, that, their interests yeah. are not that far off. Yeah. I mean, this thing is visually stunning. To me, I, uh, you know, I grew up loving the aesthetic look of, like, a creep show and that kind of, you know, the, the bright colors. Yeah. And that is a different conversation because you can take that back to the EC Comics. But... To judge it on the merits of the movie creep show, it's like just that beautiful, really going for that for those primary colors, and you look at this beautiful. I mean, just you know the shot compositions, the montages, how everything's lit and set up, and you know a lot of these shots, you know that are the movement and um, even the idea that the the uh, cinematographer saying that they wouldn't use say gels, but they'd almost use like they'd shoot through like uh, cloth, colored cloth to get that. Yeah. The blue or red on somebody. Phys- I mean, it's just it's mind blowing. You and and you could. See, I mean, some of these setups must have took so long or camera tests to get this right color right. And you got about six or seven different shades of a color on the screen, and you don't you you don't even notice it. That you know, I mean, we've talked about and people who are big film fans realize that everything within the frame is done on purpose, but just to this extent where yeah. everything is, it's just so insane. It really is a cinematic achievement. This movie, um, the director of photography, cinematographer Luciano Tavoli. See, he uh, he went on to shoot Tenebrae for Argento, but then he came to America. He shot Reversal of Fortune, which is what Jeremy Irons yeah. won the Academy Award for. As Ron Silver, who's a favorite of Dion's. I of love mine. Ron Silver. Uh, single white female. God bless him. Yeah, yeah. And he tells a funny story about single white female that maybe we'll tell later. Yeah, remember that movie with uh, and. Uh, Jennifer Jason Lee, maybe? Yeah. But, yeah, that's that's Jennifer Jason Lee and Bridget Fonda. But uh, he also did... Do you remember the movie with... Uh, what's his name? The guy... The guy who... The redhead guy from NYPD Blue and... David First Caruso? Blue, David Caruso. Jade. Not, not Jade, but right around, that, the, right around that time with the one with Nicolas Cage. Yeah, they remade... Kiss of Death. It's a remake of Kiss, Richard, Richard Woodmark's Kiss of Death. Yeah, Nicolas Cage plays the heavy in it. Yeah. He shot that. He oh, shot wow. Desperate Measures with uh, Andy Michael, Garcia. Yeah, Michael, Michael, Keaton. Michael Keaton. Oh, great underrated <laughs> Michael Keaton role, by the way. And Andy Garcia for, for that uh, uh, part. Yeah, so yeah. So he, he didn't just do Italian stuff. He came over yeah, here. Yeah, he, he ended up coming over here, and I'm sure part of it was because people wanted to work with him because of this movie. Yeah. You know, what they went, what they set out to do was they went and they watched, they screened Walt Disney's Snow White. Yeah. 
and they looked from 39 at, they looked at it and they were like this is like these are the colors that we want yeah. to this is the color palette well, that's an amazing idea because like we said earlier that they wanted to try to have it have that kind of children's book fairy tale kind of a, oh, sure. a feeling and so, the casting of oh, Jessica uh, what's her Harper. Face? Harper yeah because she has to me Dar- Argento talks about how he cast her because she has you know these big eyes that are very yeah. you know but it, it but which you, is like very anime yeah it's oh it's also very Disney nowadays like '90s Disney or '80s yeah. Disney with like Beauty and the Beast or Aladdin the, yeah, the, Ariel from yeah from Little Mermaid, Mermaid but even older if you look at like she you could easily put her in Snow White. And have her look like the princess, or the you know the from Snow White, yeah. and it's it is just a beautiful idea to use that aesthetics, this this uh, Technicolor system they used here, which um, you know there's different kind of opinions if they use this three strip method, or if they didn't use this three strip method, but the, like the, like the Technicolor of the time that they used, and it's fascinating now because you think somebody else would have thought of this yet. But it's, I guess, like when they developed Technicolor, it was this process that would take, what, a couple days just to develop the film. And yeah. then by the time you get to the 70s, they had other stock that was, you know, it took a half a day to develop. So Tricolor started to fall by the wayside. And by the 70s, uh, you know, New York, L.A., or wherever the other places that had these uh, processing places, systems, they they were getting rid of this cumbersome uh, machines that would develop the, the, the Technicolor because people weren't shooting on Technicolor yeah. anymore. So the story here is that that Argento and the, uh, the DP, the cinematographer... The Vole. The Vole. <laughs> Luciano the Vole. He, he, they got the idea, let's use this process. So they say they found the last yeah. machine and that was like still in Rome. they them not to get rid of which it. They, well, they were... Because they were in the process, all these places were of getting rid of them. And Rome still had one set up and they were going to be getting rid of it. So they said, before you do it, can you please leave it in place so we can use this thing? And so my point was that I can't... Well, I would... Hell, if you and I were making a movie, I'd be like, let's go find... I mean, we yeah. might be able to do that, but let's... To get that look you want... I mean, it's... I don't... You know, I, I wonder just, if that's I've, because of Technicolor in the 50s. You see how these... I, You know, I never put it together, but the beautiful colors of the Hitchcock years in the yeah. 50s or like the Warner Brothers Rebel Without a Cause and those beautiful reds and, you know, that it's because they're shooting on cinemascope technicolor yeah you know? i'm not sure Forbidden because Planet, from, you, know? you know this is i know more than the average joe about shooting film because we shot hundreds and hundreds of feet of 16 millimeter we got, did we did yeah we got a process and stuff but i don't know Back enough people shot film yeah. <laughs> i don't know enough about it to really understand the technicolor process and how it works because argento says that they were looking for a very low S- ASA, a very slow film stock. What's that mean? Which means layman, yeah. that the slower it is, the more light you need to get an exposure on, on the, the film. film. Yeah, but the less grain you it's get, visible. so like the it's a much nicer, more pleasant, smoother image. But it takes a lot of light to get so it. So like in the old days, um, a lot of the film stock at that time was slower. So that's why in old movies you needed all those big, big lights. And yeah. You had to shoot in a studio. We talked a couple months ago with Bullet, the advent of the Aeriflexes. But like 
faster film stock you don't need that much light so that lets you be able to shoot more and on location because you don't have to set these big ass lights up and yeah. all that but the other side of that is you're gonna get it's the grain you start seeing like the um the celluloid the imperfections on the celluloid that's what i don't understand now when people are like you know going 4k to 8k to 24k <laughs> it's like but how good can you make a movie from the 50s and 60s yeah. look i mean how, I, much, how clear do you need that grain to be yeah because it's, <laughs> it's there it's not gonna get any better and uh you know it's it's, it's i don't understand where it's like you, you're gonna see it like you've never saw it before and it's like but i, I i'm seeing the same so anyway so with here you're saying they, they're looking for a particularly slow stock because so they want that very clean, crisp, no grain. Beautiful, yeah, you know they want it to look. But you're going to need a lot of light to get that exposure like that. And for that. some, he says that they went to Kodak and Kodak was sold didn't have any for the essay they were looking for. And he says that they found a supply in Texas. Yeah, but it wasn't a lot. So what it caused was that they could only do like one or two takes of everything because yeah. they just didn't have enough film stock to be able to just keep doing stuff over and over again, which I think is fascinating. But then I don't understand. Like that's a whole other process too because people don't realize who don't whoever shoot film. You know, you can't nowadays with you know your phone, your yeah. videotape camcorder, you can let stuff roll. But when you when you're shooting film, you only have a, a spool. Yeah, a hundred feet, eight hundred feet. So you have you got to you know. Until that canister runs out, the the Mickey Mouse ears from it goes from one to the other. You have to really choose your. You can't just let that shit run endlessly yeah. because you know. Which I think was the biggest benefit of going to film school at the time that we went to. Right on we the had, end of it, of the was film that era. we understood like had to be economic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because we because Blake and I and all everyone else at that school. Well, Jesus, we put our parent, our parents spending all that money because we were buying Kodak film, 16 yeah. millimeter reversal like or negative. 10 minutes and a pop, you know, of a, of a roll. You yeah. Know? And then, you know, so 800 feet equals 10 minutes. 100 feet is like two minutes. And that was, not only was it, ex- we were getting a college discount, a student discount, but not only is it balls ass expensive to buy, then you got a pro. And then what are you buying? Reversal or negative? Reversal meaning that when you develop, it's like a, Polaroid. That's the only copy you have. But with negative, you can make prints like you have. You can, you know, it's a negative. And then when you, then you got to process it, which means you got to send it someplace for someone to develop it. Then you get it back, and you got to make sure that they develop it too bright, too low. Is it underexposed, overexposed? And then yeah. you got to color correct it. Then you got to go back, and if you're shooting negative, you got to get prints of it. And you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's. Just, then you got to sync. Yeah. You know, your sound. It was this whole process before you even get to the editing. Yeah, you know, aspect you got to sync it to make sure every you know. So not really understanding the Technicolor process. Yeah, I'm unclear as to whether that they're saying it takes three days to develop. That Technicolor you know. is a film stock, or if it's a processing well, method. Making, yeah, to make it to have these colors to look develop a way. it and then reprint it. So, so they found this film stock in Texas allegedly, and so it makes them be very choosy with the, how many takes they do. Now, as Dan pointed out, they use the last Technicolor processing machine that Rome had. Suspiria so ad- ends up being one of the last Technicolor films ever made Yeah, because of that. Um, just because of what Dan was saying, where it's like it's just going by the wayside, that thing. Now, when in the processing, apparently there's a filter in the printing process of of you know making your prints where... I'm not quite clear what it does. They someone they explain in that documentary that it softens the borders, and I guess makes 
I don't know, a, a more defined image somehow or whatever, but they end up taking that filter out. Yeah. And when they process it. And uh, and that is one of the things that adds to like that visual aesthetic to Suspiria. Now, they also apparently some kind of process, which is a word that I, I'm afraid to try to pronounce. Im- well, I'll do it because I, f- I fuck everything up. <laughs> it is called the uh, imbibition. I-M-B-I-B-I-T-I-O-N. Imbibition. Imbibition technicolor. So I don't know. And what- apparently this was some kind of method that had something to do with water saturation. <laughs> Which is again like we're just giving you like a brief, the briefest of overviews because we don't quite understand it, but I think it's interesting. Yeah, because you have to kind of know, you Uh, know. And in doing this way of processing, oh, here it is. Imbibition is a special type of diffusion when water is absorbed by solid colloids, causing an enormous increase in volume. Examples include the absorption of water by seeds or dry wood. Matrix potential contributes to significant such. So, so I guess it's the somehow the absorption of the celluloid on the film. Yeah, it, it's but it, apparently the the effect of it makes makes the colors particularly vivid. Yeah, and the and the same process was used during the Oz sections of Wizard of Oz. Yeah, to have it look that striking. And then gone of the wind, gone with the wind. Yeah, so because they were also using Technicolor that process. At the time. So this uh, all of this attributes to imbibition. The <laughs> people just rolling their eyes into the visual aesthetic of Suspiria. Yeah, and one of the reasons why them doing a 4K print of this movie is probably going to look balls ass. Yeah, like you know how uh, sharp that'll be sharp. But what does that mean? The technical three. See, I'm asking. You I, yeah, I don't understand the, the three, three strip the process. Three strip process. And I, I think mean, that clearly has to do you're dealing with. Uh, Magenta, cyan, and green. Yeah, I think for film and video, and something I'm sure it has something to do with maybe your processing each. Um, this is a guess. Yeah, uh, not even totally educated. Guess. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm sure it maybe has to do with that you're processing each color at a time, kind of the way they do screen prints. Yeah, well, which I'm is like stuff. you're doing blue, then you know, and maybe it's by processing each color one at a time. You end up preserving a lot of maybe detail and definition. Yeah, and this other word goes a lot with plant life and absorption of seeds into plant. You know, and it has so maybe this has something to do with since uh, film is actually celluloid, it has something to do with it. it you know, if you're immersing it in water, it for a certain amount of time mixed with a chemical, yeah, it could cause my, an effect. My only guess. Yeah. Uh, but it also it gives it lends itself to have this very striking look, like you said, like Gone with the Wind has. But then in the Oz, the color portions of Wizard of Oz, there's really so now that we've vivid talked, color. Now that we've talked about the inspiration, we've talked about the visual aesthetic of the movie. I just I need to talk about. I need. I need. Like I was saying, like as a visceral experience like this movie is firing on all cylinders hey blake have you tried hello fresh yet actually dion i have what a great service for people like myself that love to cook but don't love the hassle of grocery shopping and don't have time to plan meals or figure out what ingredients i need hello fresh is perfect it is cooking made quick and easy hello fresh is a meal kit delivery service that shops plans and delivers step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook eat and enjoy by eliminating trips to the store and with meals that take only about 30 minutes to make hello fresh saves you time 
And by only sending exactly what you need for each meal, they save you space in your kitchen and refrigerator. There are three plans to choose from, classic, veggie, and family. And each box that gets delivered is made up of fresh, responsibly obtained ingredients. As someone that loves food and also loves that feeling I get when I see a new package sitting on my doorstep, HelloFresh is kind of a dream come true. Fresh, delicious food delivered right to my door in recyclable, insulated packaging? What could be better? And at less than $10 per serving and free shipping, it is cheaper than ordering takeout. The wife and I went with the veggie plan. The food showed up securely packed in ice. They sent us sweet potato and black bean tacos, butternut squash and sage risotto, and creamy, dreamy mushroom fuzzini. The illustrated recipe cards were easy to follow. The portion sizes were just enough, and the meals were great. Our favorite one was the sweet potato and black bean tacos. It came with an avocado. You chopped up a sweet potato, put it in the oven, and before you know it, you're eating three hot, warm, delicious tacos that feel like they've come from a restaurant. I went with the classic meal plan. So far, they've sent delicious pork fajitas, Korean beef bibimbap, and chicken sausage orzoto with mozzarella cheese, zucchini, and tomatoes. I'm a foodie, and for me, variety is the spice of life. So I love that each of the meals they send is so different. I love that one night I'm eating Mexican, and then the next Korean, and then Italian. So now, Saturday Night Movie Sleepover listeners, here comes the savings. For a total of $60 off, that's $20 off your first three boxes. Visit HelloFresh.com SAT60 and enter the promo code SAT60. That's right. Just go to HelloFresh.com SAT60 and enter the promo code SAT60 to save a total of $60 off your order. At less than $10 a serving, that's like getting six meals free. I can't wait to see what they send next. Ooh. You know, we open with, and we're, again, we're assuming you've seen this movie, so we're not going to totally Oh, you mean oh, the, the, summarize, the listener. <laughs> summarize the, the, what well, happened Well, it's a story. girl, she's from New York. She she goes, she gets, I guess, to uh, study at to a, study to, at a re- really famous, well-renowned dance school in Europe, which is in Germany. She goes there to learn ballet dance, and then she's one of the last people to see one of the female students leaving the school. So she, the night she gets there, she gets a cab in the rain to the school, and she's trying to get into school, and then somebody runs out. She sees them, yeah, and then that person gets murdered. Yeah, that, and that's the opening kind of thing. And then the next day, she comes back, and she's, hey, how, you know, to dance. She, then you realize that the police are investigating. And then she's there to learn how to, uh, at the school with everyone else, and crazy shit starts going on while they're there with the different dancers, and it's very... And you realize that the school is run by witches. Witches. <laughs> Wishes, which is also kind of in a lot of ways a throwback to the whole fairy tale thing. You know, yeah, all those Sleeping Beauty and Snow White and all that stuff, and even Hansel and Gretel. It's all everything's about witches, and it's also huge at the time. Uh, the occultism we've talked about in the '60s into the '70s. I mean, we already just said at the head of the cast from um, the early 20th century, but you have in cinema, you have like Rosemary's Baby. You've got um, uh, what's the other like The Exorcist? You have these kind of movies that deal deal with like either the dark spirits yeah, or sure. religion. You then know, you get Devil's a lot of Rain. The, you know, you get like a lot of the, but you get a lot of so in the the zeitgeist of American or uh, I guess race with the devil. Yeah, you know, a lot Classic. of the cinema at the time <laughs> is about you have a lot of the, you, the TV movies. Men. Yeah, you know, Satan School for Girls. Like even in television, Sunday night. You movies. know, it was a huge. I mean, it was, and then also in the seventies too, you hear about people. I mean, growing up, uh, that you know, people 
you know, people were having, you always hear about devil worshippers. And the, yeah. I remember growing up, you know, people, you don't want to go into the woods because at night devil worshippers, they're killing animals. And, that, you know, that was a big thing in the 70s, like yeah. devil, black magic and devil worship and all this stuff. So this is something now, this isn't, that plays into all this. Yeah, you know, this is something I don't want to get too far into because... I think even Amityville Horror has a little of that, maybe. Oh, yeah. Right? Probably. I mean, aside from the ghost, but they're talking about the poltergeist. If I remember, the, I'm, t- I'm only going off the movie version, but like they go down yeah. the basement, there's like an altar, or there's a doorway to hell. Remember the black sludge or something? I, I, it's been years since I've seen the original. But like, you know, we did this probably even more so with Dawn of the Dead last week, and it's something that we often talk about. You know, we like to put things in some kind of historical context, what's going on in the world, or especially, especially in America at the time that something like Dawn of the Dead is made, or something where we do and since I'm not certainly an expert or not even that well read up on Italian history I do think it's interesting and worth noting that apparently from in Italy from the late 60s to the early 80s it's a period called the years of lead mm. and like in America which I think spawns things like Night of the Living Dead Texas Chainsaw Massacre you know Last House on the Left we start getting this gritty even you know we get even a grittier look at you know, like Bullet and French Connection, just like stuff stuff starts getting a little grittier because what's going on in America then is a lot of kind of social and political turmoil. We certainly talk about it with the invasion of the Body Snatchers cast from 78. But apparently Italy is going through... Also the barriers of you're able to show more in cinema now with the codes yeah. and all that, so you're able to, sh- you know... But apparently what's going on in Italy is as kind of messed up or even more so this... These years of lead is uh, how's that spelled? L E A D. Oh, okay, lead. Uh, it's, it's a it's a huge time in Italian history of social and political turmoil as well, and there's a, a like an abundance of uh, tragically both left and right wing terrorist attacks, assassinations going on, kidnappings, a lot of protests from both students and workers. So there's this there's this whole unrest civil unrest going on in Italy at the time and I don't know if it, it's not it can't be coincidence that we start getting in the late 60s we start getting you know Mario Bava starts going out with like Bay of Blood and then Argento kind of rises to the foreground with his like violent interpretations of, of Giallo and mystery uh, thrillers and then uh Fulci comes along and starts upping the gore factor. It's always interesting to think that, you know, art is the sponge of things that are going on in the world at the time. I'm nodding my head. <laughs> and Italy is no different. Yeah, of course. You know, often, you know, we talk about Italy as being, you know, they'll take Dawn of the Dead and then they'll run with that zombie idea until they beat it to the ground, trying yeah. to make a buck, selling million zombie movies. The Spaghetti Westerns were that way. You know, the search of the only made some spaghetti Westerns became yeah. big, and then Italy just churned out a million well, spaghetti yeah, And then in the, in the, seven, in the 60, 60s into the 70s, also the crime, the genre film, like the crime films, they have a lot of heist films, like, uh, uh, what's the name of that? The, the uh, Jean-Maria Volonté, the cir- Circle, the Red Circle, the Circle something. But there's a bunch of these crime. Yeah. yeah, that was big too, genre crime heist films. And there, then you also you know? get the escapism of the sex comedies, which were also very big in Italy. Yeah. You know, that would took it to the other level. Like, yes, this exploration of yeah. violence. Which is happening a- in like Britain too. They had a lot of those sex 
romps in this. You know, but we know we all know Benny Hill as a joke, but yeah. they had a lot of that. That's like Europe is like second nature to have like girls running around in bikinis and guys like ogling them. <laughs> you know, there's no plot except like to see the girls topless. You know. Yeah, yeah. And, hey, you know, nothing wrong with that for me. But, you I just, you know, because yeah. it's, it's something that we frequently do on the show. I thought it was worth mentioning. Of course. That, you know, Italy's at its most edgy and extreme during this period of fucked up shit going on socially and politically. The byproduct is these, you know, or these kind of movies that are coming out and showing. Then another thing that that, uh, Argento does here, which is a uh, method that is used back to, like, you know, uh, Leone and stuff, is they shoot everything MOS. Yeah. Meaning... uh, Mit-out sound. Yeah, mit-out sound. And that means that, you know, um, Leone would do this, is that if you're going to make a movie and then you're going to dub it in a dozen languages because their main market was not Italy. Yeah, it They're, was. They made the most money exporting their goods to America, Germany, yeah. all the surrounding European countries. So Asia. they were dubbing these into every language. Yeah, so a lot of times uh they would maybe only record the if it's Clint Eastwood, they would record his lines, or if it's an American actor, they would record whoever the star is. I mean, that was my question to you. Is is this Harper's real voice? It is her voice, but, but she dubs I it. think she redubbed it. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of times on set, and that's, you know, and also thing, the, 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 um, we're also thinking, you know, everyone knows about the film process where uh, back then certainly stuff isn't married together. So if you're shooting film, you only have a film camera, your film is shooting silent film. And then you have a, an audio guy who's recording audio, and then later you have, that's what the clapboard is for at the beginning when you see someone say, blah, 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 take... You know, so then you have to marry the sound, the picture and the sound together later to sync it. That's where the synchronization comes in. So if you're taking the sound out of that, it's a lot easier to record to faster because you don't have to worry about external noise or whatever. Yeah. You can you can have someone next door hammering away making sets because you're not recording sound. Who the heck cares? You know, it's like silent movies would do a lot of this. You know, like that. So it's like they're they're shooting MOS. So on set, you could have uh, our lead uh, Harper Jessica Harper speaking. English, the other ladies are answering back in Italian, and then the schoolmaster's talking to him in German. Yeah, well, that's the thing, is because their market was international, Yeah, they would purposely hire actors from various for territories. Yes, yeah, who were known in, in different regions. Which so is that brilliant. there was a familiar face for like every yeah. region. So, And this is a reason why they say, that, what is it, that the people wanted heart on America, or they in a lot of his, or maybe particularly this movie, was because they wanted to, you know, they yeah. want to push for that face that people know. And he saw and her. She was coming off of uh, Phantom of Paradise. Phantom of Paradise. Yeah, the, yeah, the brilliant uh, Brian De Palma movie. And she turns down Annie Hall, which I don't know what part she would have been going up for in Annie Hall to yeah, do this. Um, maybe the Shelley Duvall part? Okay, maybe. You know, so she ends up doing this. So then on set, it's a little confusing just for the actor. You know, where you're 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 having a scene. You know, everybody's lying. She's but literally this, talking to somebody who's speaking Italian back to her. Yeah, another actress is speaking German, yeah. and they all are just kind of they know what the script is, so they know whose turn it is to talk, and, and they know and what acting. they're saying. And then later on, you have then you can worry about overdubbing it. Uh, you know, everything into English or everything into Italian, everything into German. So uh, it's it's just a common practice overseas because. It also it, gives it's easier and it's quicker. It also gives Argento the opportunity, which uh, everybody says he did, which is he would play Goblin's music on set, blasted during yeah 
while they were shooting because they had, this is an instance where they had already came up with the and I heard this is something that Leone did too for I'm sorry uh, Morricone did for Leone too that he would sometimes there's two methods of, I'm talking to the guy who wrote a book about it but there's two methods of you either wait till you see the footage and then you score it yeah or you just score it blind maybe by reading the script and then you send and that then influences the maybe the um, director while they're shooting, mm-hmm. in, in, like in this instance. Yeah, well, what apparently what happened uh, with Goblin and Suspiria, and I would like to go further into the and score. Goblin is the is the, the the band who did the score, which we talked about last week on Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, yeah. and I, you know I'd like to talk a little bit more about the, their music later, but in terms of production. They read the script, and in talking to Argento, Argento's like, it's about wit, it's about a witch, and blah, blah, blah. They produced a bunch of music. It's like what Tangerine Dream did for uh, William Freakin with Sorcerer. And and then, Arge- and then Argento played that music on set. Now, according to Claudio Simonetti... Who's, go- who's the goblin. Who's, the, who's the, the keyboard player for Goblin. In my book, Scored to Death Conversation with Some of Our Greatest Composers, he explains that we did that. Yes, there was music. But when we then saw the movie after it was completed, we realized that that music didn't work for the movie. It'd be funny if it's like just slapstick. Boom, boom, dan, dan, dan. So they did produce a bunch of music. Yeah. And it was played and it was recorded. And there were like demos that Argento played. But then once the movie was completed, they started to see the dailies or started to see rough cuts of the movie. They realized that that music didn't work. And then they made the score that we know. Yeah. Now, Simonetti says nobody knows what happened to that music. The, dem- the essential demos, the original. Yeah. I was going to say that'd be such to be a gold He's mine. He's like, we never heard it again. For all, you know, we have no idea. Maybe yeah. it'll pop up in the Cinebox vaults, which is, you know, the company that was the record label at some point. But according to him, that music was just lost. Uh, but it's not, but they essentially weren't playing the score that we know yeah. on set. And this is a, an era of, um, for people who are musicians, they know. This is all no computers, so it's very much like oh, yeah. since you're you're sitting there. And we talked about that maybe with Halloween with uh, Mighty Mighty Mike Vanderbilt with people, you know, the, the Alan Howarth, and you're just you're there all day just yeah. trying to get that it's all sound. analog sense. Beautiful. I think they used a particular Moog synthesizer that was the first one that had some kind of uh, uh, sampling. It was the first one to have sampling, and it probably only had like. A couple of seconds worth of sampling that it would repeat. Yeah, uh, and you can hear it in the the movie, but uh, it was still very rudimentary. And so, uh, but I don't want to get too much into the score yet because I think it's you know the movie itself. The opening of this movie opened with a little bit of a voiceover, which in the Italian version is Argento. Yeah, and was dubbed into English here. Uh, and we have this woman enter like the eeriest airport of all time. Yeah, Munich. Yeah, <laughs> Munich. They shot it in Munich, but they—they—it's crazy looking because she's coming from Kennedy and she lands, and then it's almost—it's weird because when she's in the airport, it's almost like uh, she's still on planet Earth, 
but as soon as like the doors open and you almost they cut to like the automatic door you yeah. see that mechanism opening and shutting and then you have this really blown out red you know like that people are walking and then as soon as she steps out and the door shut and the rain starts it's like you're now in the she's like went into the hollow deck yeah you know she's in this world she's, she's in, gone through the yeah the the, the, the window <laughs> the mirror you know into the land of uh, you know uh, what do you call it, the land of not but even the, the airport Alice. I mean, it has this like goblin music. I mean, he instantly sets a mood. Yeah, you know, this became a thing for, you know, Halloween does it to a certain extent with like setting up the suspense of the POV and then the murder of Judith Myers. You know, the opening with a bang. But Argento takes this idea to like the upteenth degree, where it's like we enter this whacked out psychedelic, you know, airport. With this crazy progressive music, synthesized music, and then into torrential downpour. Yeah, and you know, you're saying the psychedelic too. The '70s is disco, so we're a lot of col- bright colors, strobe lights, disco balls. Like all that's the era of just you know excess. So seeing that when she gets out, it's it's pouring, and she you know, and and the soundtrack's pumping. I mean, you're, you're put on the edge of your seat. Yeah. At the very least, you're uncomfortable. And then all of a sudden, she steps outside to the taxi uh, stand, and, and you know she's in the middle of nowhere, no one's around, and the cars aren't stopping, and she's getting soaked. And she, she I'm just gonna go wait, wait inside. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, calm down. Yeah, she's that. trying, and she's trying to, you know. Then, then she is able to flag the, t- the taxi down. And the guy won't even get out for her. So her, and then the language barrier. Which is kind of a That's joke. Awesome. Yeah, and he's like, "What?" And then he repeats what she says, and she finally shows. And then when she's, you know, then even inside the 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 the, the taxi with the, the the water and the you know she's wet, yeah, uh, the, uh, the wind outside lights. Yeah, I mean that 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 cab ride gets replicated in Inferno with the music of Keith Emerson, a a, a wet female protagonist yeah. in the back of a cab with crazy synthesizer music. Um, and then happens with Asi Argento and Mother of Tears. Somehow it's like these weird things that he decides to keep, but like that cab ride is something that becomes a staple of the trilogy. It's almost like you're way. getting teleported off of, you know, to another to another dimension. I mean, totally. It is that ride. It's like the air tram. Yeah. You know, you know. <laughs> or mon- like getting on the monorail. You know, from, in Dracula. from your Disney hotel, yeah, to, <laughs> to the <laughs> to Epcot or the know, Magic Kingdom. It's like when you when when uh, what's his face, uh, Jonathan Harker steps off, and then he's waiting for Dracula's coach, and you get on, and then all of a sudden you're going to you know the coach of death. You get into this thing, and you're you're brought to this mysterious land. You know, it's just this movie does the atmosphere of this movie is. Uh, hits you from the very beginning of the, from the first frame you know in, as soon as you enter this world it's this unsettling atmosphere that I think never really and then is relentless through the entire movie and I think there are very few if any moments in this movie where as a viewer you can sit back and like relax really yeah. well you're, it's also you're trying to figure out what the heck's going on you're trying to a little bit of detective work, and then you're also digesting these gorgeous sets and the colors in the sets. You know, it's not just 
it's just not even a matter of the of the lighting that's being used, but also just the the colors of the dance, the interior of the dance, yeah. even the exterior of the dance school, which is based on that. What is it? The Whale House, it's called. They're, um, they're supposedly based the dance school on a real school somewhere, yeah. and you know, so they mocked it up somewhere. The interiors are shot in Rome, but they did do a number of shooting in Munich, like at the Munich airport or outside the BMW headquarters. Yeah, that big square. Yeah, which yeah. is actually where Hitler would give oh, well, speeches. Yeah, oh, uh, there's yeah, so there's the big square. Uh, at night, where the where the blind man walks through, yes, yeah. where where Hitler would give a lot of his big, and they, it's that's crazy to see the actual, you know, the, the frame grabs of side by side of people yeah. there with Hitler there. Now I wonder, and they talk about the that that was technically the most difficult thing to see because they had to light this huge, yeah, this giant vast, like Times Square, like or two football yeah. fields worth yeah. of space with huge giant arc lights, and to you know. Uh, so big old from a technical yeah. standpoint, they did, they spent like a week lighting it or something like that before they actually shot there, um, and it's got like this old like Grecian yeah, it's with the Greek columns, kind of like a Roman columns, kind of like this that now, architecture. I wonder, nineteen seventy seven, this movie comes out, maybe for Americans, but may, I'm asking more for Europeans. Does that look you do you think that location in nineteen seventy seven as opposed to forty years later now means something to viewers? Oh, is like being a place of indicative yeah. of Do you of, think like that that there are viewers you know, more specifically, I'm sure German viewers, yeah. but maybe European viewers that view, that see that scene and connotations of where that it, it was. means something different to them. maybe like i mean it, it carries more weight it's not just a coincidence that they're shooting there like it's like they're using it for uh for a kind of uh maybe not even like not even maybe not even like uh intentionally yeah but just by fact ipso facto yeah <laughs> that it's shot in this place that its biggest claim to fame for lack of a better term is that hitler gave a lot of monumental speeches. Yeah. speeches. I mean, could I mean I would think that would be lost on people outside of Germany. Uh, I find it more. I just don't know if like newsreels, you know, were traveling around that had footage sure. from there and that I'm, architecture so clear, you know, so yeah, specific. Yeah. I mean, maybe. I mean, I I look at a lot of it like you know, since a lot of Germany to a large extent was just carpet bombed by the end of the war, they had to rebuild basically everything. So you get a lot of like Munich Airport. Got a lot of that new fifties and sixties kind of look and design, and and then the what is it? The BMW headquarters where where, where she talks at to one point. Here, yeah. yeah, and then they even do that shot that looks to me from high above, very reminiscent of North by Northwest when Cary Grant's leaving the UN. Yeah, you know, and so I wonder if there's just a you know a dichotomy there of them showing like the newer classic architecture, yeah, versus even the contemporary like neo futuristic, yeah, you know, where it's the you have the dance school, the interiors of the dance school, and then this big square. Uh, to then to then be contrasted by this very modern, you know, which now looks like mid-century European architecture. Yeah. You know, of, this of building's uh, Lincoln Center area has a lot of this kind. Well, of because it's all that's all. What is that? Forties and fifties. They, they, yeah. they, you know, you get a lot of that in the fifties and even our our alma mater. 
that's it's all made out of brick and it's all very that design you know that 60s new haven has a lot of that it's brutalism yeah kind of look so i yeah so i don't know that could be you know the shoot there you know but it's there's so much going on within the frame, especially when they get into the dance school of just how the rooms look, the red yeah. room and the thing and the colors, you know, it doesn't even look like a dance the school. Velvet curtains. Yeah, you know. Lush and, yeah, and, with, and then you're trying to figure out what the heck's going on. I mean, they have a barbed wire room or they have this, <laughs> you know, they have this, <laughs> you know. <laughs> they keep the razor wire. Yeah, they for, keep razor wire for, just, for the know, summer. They need, they need to bring it back, wait to bring it back out know, for summer to yeah. surround the. <laughs> <laughs> just in case, you know, just in case something happens or whatever, it's protect the kids. And then the, even the Forest is very like you know to me like I said it looked like the Batman eighty nine when he's driving back you know where are we going you know it's dan dan you know it's like you yeah. can see the Batmobile go by and uh, try to make heads or tails of what's going on in the script like at the beginning when the woman we talked about uh, her name in the movie is Pat Hingle which is hilarious because Pat Hingle is a uh, a phenomenal character actor that I think a lot of our people will know as the Commissioner Gordon in the Tim Burton movies. Um, who uh, great character actors in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and he's a guy who um, he was up for a role of a movie called Elmer Gantry that Burt Lancaster uh, eventually got, but he fell down an open elevator shaft and almost died and was stuck down there for I don't know how long, but that's the reason why for the rest of his life he had like a limp. A pronounced yeah. limp Pat, Pat Hingle. So every time when I hear like, you know, when Pat died, I'm thinking like they killed Pat Hingle in the movie, you know. Um, <laughs> But uh, when when the the, guy, the girl at the beginning, Pat, she's killed. It's like, do they even you know you don't you see these hands with the knife and the black gloves and they're very hairy hands and actually they, you might even see like some um, nails on them. You don't really know who that is. Yeah. At first you think it's like because the, the other woman that's that's at the that's there saying, oh, it's a killer's here, a killer. So you don't know is it a killer or yeah. it must be demonic. You well, know? yeah, that's part of. You know, I guess where I was going, we got kind of sidetracked there, which is like he takes this idea of like the big opening and spreads it out over like 18 minutes or yeah. something like that, 13 minutes, whatever it is, from this buildup of uh, Susie Banyan, our protagonist, making its way to the school. Then we see at, they criss- crisscross. <laughs> crisscross. <laughs> she made, they've got the, we got Pat leaving, Susie's showing up. It's funny too. She sees her just running aimlessly in the forest. I mean, I would be like, "Are you all right?" You know, like, you know, when she's leaving, she's like, "Oh, that's crazy." That when she runs out, she's like, <laughs> you know, yeah, she's not like doesn't pull over. Like, you need help? Yeah. Are you sure you're okay? Because it's raining. <laughs> and uh, so Pat goes to like a friend's house. We'd assume, yeah. And of course, even the apartment arch- like set I, design I, is crazy. I, yeah, it's got, I, like those. Uh, and I'm that? really lost in the set design because I think she's. At first, I thought she was in the. She she goes into the bathroom, and then the woman shows. So I was thinking, because the woman keeps her room. The person she goes to see keeps leaving. So I'm like, oh, maybe she's leaving because she's in the bathroom. But the bathroom's huge, and when she's seen, when the, the thing comes through the window yeah, at yeah. her, like it's like you're trying to figure out what the heck's going on, and and then then I mean, even like you said, yeah, when you get into the to the apartment, it's kind of Art Deco, but it's it's over exaggerated Art Deco, and even she like gets in the, the elevator. The, the fish on the wall has that. What's that artist's that artist? name that where they you know it you know looks like how you look at it can look it looks like one thing oh and then if you turn it around it looks like something yeah, else yeah if you yeah, look yeah. at it a different way it looks it looks like something else like the, even that's going on and yeah and then we just see these eyes in the darkness and this brutal attack on this woman from this i think i don't know for some i don't at this point like i don't know if on the first viewing if i assumed it was a 
man or because de- I just see the hairy arms and it's almost it's almost comical when he pulls her through and he's just rubbing her face on the glass <laughs> yeah, and you're yeah. getting her like mushed up it's almost like a naked gunish kind of a and then he brings her through and then he she was she's killed and the other woman's killed and but I mean how she's killed is like he's just she's it's, it's, it's just almost like just pretty, a hand yeah. coming in, like just stabbing her, and which is very Argento. Yeah, but it's or, also you know, so like almost playfully or something. It's just yeah, like, she turns around, just you know, it, it doesn't seem like you would imagine. You know, it's not like a crime of passion. Somebody would really do it, like overkill. You're yeah, saying, where, you know, sometimes it's just like playing almost, you know, fun. Yeah, like you know, enjoying like themselves. With it. But it's like, and it, then we see like the knife stab the beating heart. Yeah, see, and then like the like move the movies Argento movies stop when you get to the we get off the highway when we get to the killing. Yeah, and we have the killing be its own thing. So the Which plot is almost stops. always his hands. Yeah, and he's and then it's like so she's getting stabbed and she's like ah and she's getting stabbed. Then all of a sudden her. Yeah. Yeah, crazy goblin music happening. Yes, yeah, you're getting inundated with all kinds of stimuli, and then you see, like you said, you cut to a close-up. You see the 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 chest is ripped open. You see the heart beating, and then you see like a knife go into the heart and hit hit one of the one of the valves, and then the freaking blood <laughs> squirting right out. And then it's then it turn, you know, and then it's very. And then all of a sudden they're. He pulls a, puts a wire around her. Well, I think it's an ante- it's a it's an antenna well, to an aerial, like a cord, like a coaxial yeah, cord. But but, but it's but like they on, were in a bathroom a minute ago, but now they're on top of the. I believe that probably it's one of those. I would imagine it's one of those things where just like the roof to the bottom level. Okay, is out the window. Yeah, you know what I mean. So you kind of you can step out onto the roof of the floor below you. Yeah, and and that, the, yeah, and. And they end up on top of like the plate glass that's above the, the stained b- glass. That's above like, the lobby of the lobby. Yeah. yeah, that's really high up. And then he's like whacking her head on the thing. They kill. Then he, then it, you think she dies there, but then the glass gives way, and the other woman who's run down is looking up. She sees it all. Then this brutal thing. The, the glass gives way. She falls. She's hung by this cord that goes up to the antenna, and then. You see she's hanging there, and then you realize she's, like, hanging a foot off the ground, and then it pans over. And then it's all, even the the composition of the blood dropping on the floor looks like they did, like, 20 takes to get that splatter correct. And then they pan over to the other woman, and she's killed by the glass that's fallen from this plain glass window above the lobby. Yeah. And it's a brutal, you know, right through the, very good effect, right through the uh, whole thing. You know, three foot chunk right through the face. Yeah, Savini was like, "Oh yeah, 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 exactly." Savini's like, "Jesus, that's <laughs> fucking awesome." You know, so and and then it's even this almost the style of blood used. That it's almost that three M blood that we talked about last week. That Savini that was yeah. really red. You know, well, that, and that's just that's just the season opener for this. Movie. Well, that's yeah. I mean, you know, that's, that's and you're like, what though? And then it's the next day. It's like she the the other woman comes back and she, and she's like, you know, I think this scene specifically is. I mean, all the murder scenes in this movie, but. But, you know, I think Argento's one of Argento's many gifts as a filmmaker is to get that attraction repulsion dichotomy going on with the murder. You know, unlike Fulci, where it's just over the top, disgusting, you know, attacking your senses that way. Argento, the way Argento does it is that it's beautiful and yeah. yet horribly morbid and disgusting in its own way but like when that woman's head goes through the glass just like partially through and the light comes and hits her that's like if you just saw a still of that 
and you separate yourself from the, the fact that it's like there's blood and that there's a woman you know all that stuff but he would be like that is like an aesthetically gorgeous frame yeah. well, <laughs> of the whole movie visual. you could take i think you can maybe take a still basically from the whole movie and but even like when he goes on with tenebre and that girl's arm gets chopped off and that she she gets up out of the chair and she sprays blood all over the white wall and she's in a white dress yeah it's like it's like there's something beautiful about it yeah and yet so wrong <laughs> yeah you know and i think that's partially why his stuff is so effective is because you're almost maybe on a subconscious level repulsed by the fact that you find it pleasing in a the, way the image yeah yeah not the murder but yeah, just the, but the just aesthetic like the the, the cinematic the, aesthetic or of the, co- the 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 colors that are being put on the screen and how it's done so then so then she then it becomes this thing where she's at the she's at the dance school she's trying to acclimate herself but she's not feeling well and then they really kind of put she meets the headmistress uh, what's her face in her final role? Joan Bennett. Joan Bennett, who's been in a lot of like um, the '40s film noir and '50s stuff like that. A Hollywood character actress, who's the head mistress of the school, and then she, then our lead girl is trying to like do the dance classes, and you know, and then she falls ill. Well, you also get these the, these this the relationships between him and the girl, the girls and Susie, and how you know the pettiness of young. Well, women and and it ties into that Argento's original intention, yeah. which is not unlike the Lost Boys when we talked about this last summer. Yeah, which was to, to use much younger actors. Yeah, they were gonna, but then, yeah, his idea was he wanted to use what like uh, ten to twelve year olds, but then you find out that uh, they couldn't. What is his father Claudio was kind of like no that would that that would be banned well, I think if you had his brother was Claudio who, oh, was, who it, produced that yeah yeah, yeah. It, it, I'm sorry his his brother was like if you if you put these children like this into a situation yeah you, you know this this won't even be I mean not not they were uncomfortable with the with the, with the content but it would it would get banned yeah yeah you know this is crazy so but I think the crossover like the carryover of the other girls' relationships where they. They seem very immature, well, so sticking their tongues out at each so other. So what they do is they just they up the ages to what from like seventeen to twenty to for, for the for the actors or for who they're supposed to be. But then they like you're saying they don't really alter the script that much. So they can they, so you kind of reflective of they're having this not pettiness but this childlike reactions to each other or the yeah the very um, you know uh, immature kind of back and forths. And even then, I like the stylistic, which I never really realized of them. And then Sargento raises the doorknobs to like. The head height. Yeah. So all of a sudden, they are kind of like kids navigating this world where every time they're opening these huge doors, they have to grab a knob that's at head level. Yeah. You know, to go open these vast, you know, you know, thirteen or twelve foot high doors. You know, um, but that and that's another great, great, le- interesting idea of having it all be like this, um, this fairy tale, this children's thing, and you know, and then. Uh, and then everything that's working there, because then you have the blind man there. The blind man comes, and the blind man well, is... Just, the, yeah, it's interesting know, that... Because the, the blind man to the back of me looks like Dario Argento, you know, with how his hairstyle is, and I'm like, yeah. is that Dario cameoing? And then it's not. But know? it's interesting that, like, the two men that... You have the the nephew or whatever. You have the little boy, and you have, the, like, the hunky... Oh, the the dude, the, the, the good dancer. dancer, yeah, yeah. But the, the two, Alexander Gudnoff of the. <laughs> but of the, the two guys that work at the thing, we have one that's mute, and then one that's blind. 
the mute with the new with the new uh, dentures Teeth, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the guy who's blind who doesn't seem to be a part of it. No, he's just coming because he's blind. He's a piano player and he's giving rhythm to the to the dance classes. Yeah, and he comes sat, he comes with his dog, his German Shepherd. He leaves the German Shepherd outside all day long, panting to death, the poor thing. And then you kind of first you think. It's almost like I guess the idea of the being able to to to, to control the lower uh, intelligence levels of the the animal kingdom, say or whatever. So the you know because then you have the idea. There's a scene where you the the the, the child who's the nephew is supposedly attacked by the dog, but you never see. Yeah. Or you never even see the nephew really again. Maybe you might see him in a shot later on, but you don't really know what yeah. it plays out there. And then they the, you know the 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 head dance instructor kind of belittles and almost takes pleasure in. You see her like smiling when she like starts yelling that the kid got hurt and get the hell out of here. We're gonna you kill your dog. And then when he's trying to, she throws his like <laughs> his jacket and his cane on the ground and he's trying to get his. And then no one's helping him. Yeah. yeah and yeah. then she's like smiling at it. And then that leads to the scene we were talking about here, where the the big square where the guy's randomly walking. The dog is like, I'm gonna take him to the biggest freaking. <laughs> and then and, and then and then Which there's. Would you imagine even as a blind as a blind man like to navigate this large open spot where there's no, yeah, there's nothing around. You know, he's and, got his and he must know it. from the sounds how echoey it is. And then there's an idea. You see this. There's all kinds of birds and pigeons uh, up on top of these kind of buildings that are around these Greek or Roman kind of uh, looking uh, like court buildings and stuff but and then there's almost there's a like a like a gargoyle or or yeah. a thing at the top that a disappears griffin yeah griffin that disappears and then you have this pov shot of this something flying by uh which you would think would start messing with him but there's only one pass yeah and then it's impossible to shoot it was a it was a yeah it was like camera a, on a zip line <laughs> yeah and this is and this is back in the 70s when you didn't have like zip lines for sports and stuff so then uh, we were only see that the, that the Griffin has disappeared from the top of this, you know, yeah. cement structure, and then all of a sudden, when you think that it's going to be this Griffin that's going to attack him, the dog just turns on him and just, yeah. you know, uh, rips his throat out. He falls and then and then just starts eating him, and then the dog runs. The dog's like shit, runs away. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so it's like you, but you get the idea that it's like you know the dog that being controlled, controlled something you know for some so, reason. And then you have the uh, then there's the other thing with the head witch where they're they're talking like the it's like the whole idea of counting the footsteps back at the do, at the dance school. Yeah, and there's a head which is a very childlike. Yeah, I did you, that. You know, you know you, where your dad is or your mom in the house. You want to know like the paces to get to a buried treasure. Yeah, or something you know, you know like it's you know, ten paces north, then take a left to go seven paces. And there's supposed to be this head of the school that they never none of them have met that they know comes and visits that they that they know of but they've never seen in person yeah. who ends up being the big bad witch Helena at the Marcos. end and uh there's the scene when uh, out of nowhere which uh, it see this, this is where like the plot the plot is very like lax and takes its time so you know like we've said before so then you have this whole scene where they start getting like um, the uh, the uh, what do you call those the, the maggots. maggots start falling from the ceiling and then they're you know it's in their hair and then there's a montage it's in the brush and they look up and it's falling over their faces and they then they go upstairs and I guess that's where they store the meat in the <laughs> attic. But that's the explanation. It's hard to understand that because because you would think if it was the witches that were part of this they wouldn't be as surprised. Yeah. yeah. But they're like, come on, let's go upstairs. Don't let anyone up here. And they run upstairs and then they're trying to find the answer themselves. And then there's more maggots. And then they're stepping on, let's watch them montage <laughs> them stepping on these maggots. And then they find the maggots. And then and it's and it's so odd. And then the next scene is then that gives them an excuse. So let's have all the girls 
sleep together on cots in this one room, and and then we're gonna put up, I don't know, white uh, Curtain, uh, curtains or or blankets, sheets, sheets just to, to cordon the room off. But then it, they turn the lights off, and all of a sudden it's like a, like a stick figure show. In the back. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're starting to see like a some pup, of the shadow puppets. Yeah, you're starting to see like no, you don't see demons behind it, but you, you can get the indication you're not going to know what you're going to see back there, or, or there even it, it, right when they turn the lights off too, it almost looked like behind like girls were kissing or you know you don't know what's happening behind our show talks a lot about the lesbian relationships in this movie and and but you never there's never an implication of you know there's never uh, an overt implication beyond the childish antics that they're that they're going for any any kind of sexual i mean you could maybe guess just from a stereotype that olga is maybe who and like, that's the, like the head, head the head dance instructor. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. Maybe she's a lesbian. How she's looking and yeah, and her. her but so yeah, I mean, Argento talks about the lesbian relationships, and then I've seen other people talk about uh, lesbianism in the movie. I don't, I don't think it's overt. I don't know if I doubt it's intentional. You yeah. know, I think it's one of those things that's more projected onto it. Because if I could, anything, because you're right. I mean, it doesn't. You could easily have put that in if you wanted to. Yeah, you could have easily had a scene or two where they're like looking at each other, or they hold, you know, some some sort of implication, or when they're in the pool, but none of that. It's I mean, all very childlike. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think even though they're women, I mean, they find that guy in their early twenties, that everything does seem innocent. Yeah, and immature. Yeah, and so like even though you're looking at women that are sexually developed, yeah. You hot you're not really 20, 21, 22, you're not yeah. so much reading them as sex objects. Yeah, as more like younger girls in a boarding school. Like nowadays, situation. if you did it, or you know, I, I, you, uh, there, there could have been very easily, easily, easily uh, ways to sexualize them, in, in which he, which they don't do in this movie. Yeah, there's no real sexualization, especially of the lead. You know, yeah. or I mean, the only thing is like they find that one guy um, cute, the dance guy who I said this is kind of like the Alexander Gudinov of the picture you know he smiles and and then you you're led to believe later on I guess he's also a part of this too like he knows what's really going on within you know the thing so and then so our lead gets sick and they're trying to nurse her back to health and what they start doing is they're giving her they're, they're like they, they gotta, they're giving her red wine every night and they're giving her some other kind of food and then after she's taking the food she's just like you know she's just knocking herself out. She's falling asleep and she can't. Yeah. So we're, the implication well, very, she's getting drugs. Very Rosemary's baby. Yeah. You know, they, 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 she wakes up and they've got, and then they're like they're forcing up a, a, a big old thingy of water down yeah, her throat. Like chip her teeth out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's really full. You need to have the one. And then, and it's, it's half of it's not even going down. Her, it's yeah. all over like in the bed. Her yeah. Of trying to help her. And then there, and the doctors there, doctor gives her a shot of who knows what. And then he puts her on this strict like bed rest and also this diet that because when she you know she was bleeding and they want her I guess they want her body they don't, they want her blood to coagulate so they're trying so he gives yeah. her this diet and then we find out later on I would think that the implication is because they never spell any of this out is she's just drinking blood <laughs> yeah I don't because know. remember at the end when she she's she pours like, it in it's like paint <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it, it's like thing. blood you know it's because you would think red wine wouldn't do that it gets all over the white sink and she, she's trying to scrub it and then it's all over her hands and smeared all over the porcelain. Yeah indicative like it's either like you're saying pain or mer- worse it's blood so we don't know what the heck they were giving her but it was something yeah, that know. was just it's hard to tell whether you know, if he uses it just as a visual thing yeah or, or if it's implying that it's something other than wine and the implication here on the broader sense is that the this school that is run by witches is what taking 
the youth of the witches and they're in the or they're not trying to convert them so much as take their energy and maybe make the other witches there stronger that's a good point like what's their what's the end game i mean i know that it's not even implied with the end game here but yeah i'm trying to i'm thinking like they're, they're that they're they're there and maybe they're, they're using logic to it yeah if they're if they're they're using they're trying to take the 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 innocence or the energy of the young girls and then use it to macabre purposes of i mean it's not turning into like a sex orgy no, no. it's not yeah i don't know you know yeah, that's a good point and then i mean it, it's a front yeah it doesn't seem like they're teaching the dark arts to the students or trying to c- convert them yeah we don't see any evidence that like one girl that is any so, of them are converted you know they're just kind of uh, um, uh and then at the beginning when this first girl the pat hingle uh commissioner gordon from Batman, when she's killed <laughs> it's yeah. it's because she's discovered something so she, yeah she knew the secret so that's why she ends up getting killed then that's the blue it. iris and then at the end of the movie we find out that our lead discovers this and then she goes down there's this whole other well, passage she discovers it through trying to find her friend sarah yeah who disappears in horrible ways yeah and then she dies she ends up getting killed and then and then remembering what she heard Pat, Pat Angle say at the before beginning. she leaves, before he left. <laughs> I just keep thinking of Pat Angle's face with a mustache, like ah, uh, yeah, because because like we said at the beginning of it, it's part of that. It goes back to that Giallo. She saw what you know when her cab arrived. The girl run out and say something, and then say something to somebody inside. Oh, I thought she was just yelling it to herself. No, she's saying it to what's her Sarah. Face? Yeah, because later on we on discover the call that box, Sarah's won't the let one. her in. Yeah, yeah, the, won't let the lead Jessica Harper in. Yeah, Susie. So. Basically, Susie Banyan ends up putting the puzzle pieces together. Yeah, as and most of the following, in. you know, takes the blue pill or whatever. She ends up, you know, goes through the little doors into into doesn't does imagination doesn't eat her dinner that night. And yeah, she be she, knocked out. Throws it all down the toilet, and it doesn't. I don't know what the hell it looks like. It's like elite. I don't know what the hell she's eating. And then um, kills the fakest looking bat ever, which is probably yeah. the only thing about the movie which that is bothers what, uh, me. That she kills the bat, or that not it looks that she fake. kills it, but that it looks yeah like it's from Dracula. I, I remember watching. <laughs> I remember watching this with my wife, and she's like, "Why didn't you just let the bat out?" And I'm like, "Honey, it's the '70s. They kill they kill animals for any any <laughs> any excuse they can. They try to kill an animal in these movies. She beats it to death with, a, with the back end of a stool and a blanket." <laughs> And this poor thing. Um, and then, yeah. But all these things are just, like, the bat has, you know, as far as we know, no real significance. But it's one of those things that just puts the audience on the edge, you know. puts a, It's just the, a, a carefully constructed, you know, maze of uncomfortableness for an audience. There's things like maggots. We don't know what, why. But it's... It's weird. It's creepy. Oh yeah, it's visceral for an audience. Same thing with the bat. It's all these things that don't necessarily play into the plot, but add into like this creepy atmosphere for an audience. <laughs> and in and that way, Suspiria I think is completely successful. And and you know even with the music, for instance, you know, uh, uh, Goblin. What I love about this score, and it's not my favorite Goblin uh, score or the, my favorite music by Goblin, but the theme is obviously completely like recognizable. And at this, and now in history, 
pretty iconic. Yeah. And it's this idea of like the celestial bells give it almost like this childish uh, music box feel. But well, it's I, amazing. Yeah, the actual like theme, the, the the themes in here, the musical themes and the score in the in the in the cuts, where you have that music box kind of a sound, and there's so much stuff going on with the. And always, I remember the takeaway from this was the boom, yeah, yeah, boom, boom. yeah, yeah. You know, and that's so particular that sound too. But then also the other thing with um, Simonetti, Claudio Simonetti, saying like those whispers, yeah, you know, which is kind of just like gibberish. But if you listen closely, it's like. Almost yes. behind, yeah, it's behind. He's saying stuff. Either it's just complete gibbers, like whispers, and that's even they say. What is it? Um, Suspiria means, like we said, the the word either means to sigh, sighed, or whispered, and then and then some points it's almost like you're saying he is saying words like whispers, how to get to, yeah. to you know, and it makes nonsense. But that's creepy too because you don't sometimes notice that it's there behind the music yeah so you know and that's almost a, a level a layer of gravy too behind all this other visual splendor well it's also what a lot of that's doing is doing what ends up being a pretty uh well used convention in horror movie scores and probably other scores too but you get you know the dun Done on in Jaws is because we don't see the shark. Yeah. It's to let the audience know that the shark is here or give them the sense that it's here, even if it's not, to kind of falsely lead them. You know, Harry Manfredini does it with the kick, kick, kick. Yeah. We, and we've talked about this in some other episodes. Yeah. That uh, it gets the audience like there's danger afoot. Yeah. It's, you know? it's, cr- it's letting the audience Tension. know that Jason could be here. Yeah, something. Or the POV is, isn't that Manfredini say that? Yeah. Like, so you don't can get confused in those movies with the POV. You realize that it could be it the could, killer. It's not just some stylized shot. It's actually somebody looking at something. Yeah. Or uh, in Black Christmas, isn't there like heavy breathing? Yeah. You know, like that. So, so you know. with the music in Suspiria, especially with the voices, and you get to the more uh, experimental avant-garde music and those howling Massimo Morante's guitar, the guitar player doing these howling voices, yeah. is what it's doing is it's... Because we don't really see the witches and the, get a sense of the actual witchcraft until the end of the movie. But what it's doing is it's creating this atmosphere for the viewer, and in this case, a listener, by saying, like, they're always present. Yeah. The witches are always here. They're around us. They're in the forest. They're in the cab ride. They're always around. And so what it's doing is it's, cre- it's creating character. I always call it um, music as character. You know, it's 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 letting the audience know that whatever the ominous force in the movie is, it's here, even though we don't see it. It's not it's not present in a visual sense, but the music is creating the atmosphere that that puts us as a viewer on the edge of our seat by saying, like, these voices are are signif are symbols of something bad coming or that's it's here already and what i kind of love about this score when you get to the more avant-garde stuff of the movie where it's less musical and more just like sounds and and you know repetition that's almost grating to the ears is there's parts where you're like you're almost like you get so lost in it that like you almost feel like it is diegetic you know we and i talk about this idea of non-diegetic and diegetic non-diegetic being the score of the movie that's outside the world of the movie we as an audience hear it but the characters don't hear it 
the thing with Suspiria is sometimes like I don't know. Like, are the audience? <laughs> like, you, you, you almost feel like maybe they are hearing this howling happening. You know, yeah. it becomes and it also becomes more sound effect than it, music. It's all you know. I I got a lot of that with, when we screened Halloween the the seventy eight one for the beginning of the October where it's like. It, some of that note sustaining is almost grating. It, it gets you, you can't relax because you have this note yeah. just being sustained forever and you're like, ah, what's going to happen? When's it going to stop? And it's like here you get that, like it's putting you on such an unease for whatever. And, and, and then at the end of this movie, nothing is really, I mean, there is a conclusion. The school burns down and the witch, but it's just kind of like, you know, it's not really a there's fun. No, there's no like, like you know, like uh, wrap up of, yeah. of like there's after no the denouement conclusion. You know, for uh, you know, she finds to this room, and uh, you know, she goes through this crazy passageway that has all this writing on it. She gets to this room, and then she's trying to figure out. Now, apparently, know. this comes from a dream that Daria Nicolodian had. Yeah, she said which is she had this idea where she, she had a dream where a vision she, she saw. In the dream, she saw these irises on the wall, and she turned the blue one. Yeah. And it opened up a passageway. Which she, is the, what the woman at the beginning of this, we find out, is what she was saying. Turn the blue yeah. one, the yeah. iris. And then so uh, Susie Jessica Harper turns the blue in this room that leads to nowhere, and then a passageway opens, and she enters in this whole other uh, wing of this uh, castle or yeah, building. She ends, and in the dream, Nickelodeon goes down this hallway, and she enters this room where there was like this anthropomorphic figure, which yeah. is kind of what we see behind the curtains of the around the bed and i think in the dream she even talks about that like in the dream there was an exploding panther and and or there was a real panther in the dream yeah yeah. so they so in the movie they have a they have like a a figurine of a panther that blows up and then everything that's supposed to be like in the you know in the in the dream it was the panther was like the like the like the ultimate like spirit animal of the witch or whatever it was in the dream. And because they couldn't do that, they still made a nod to it by having the, uh, like a little statue of, uh, of the, of the Panther explode, which is happening at the end of when Marcos is dying. Yeah. It's, and it's crazy because you have these, uh, which they do earlier when the girls are bunking together, where you have the lights turn off and you have these sheets up and you have these, um, these, uh, images behind these sheets and you have the, at one point, uh, Susie and her friend, they think behind her is sleeping yeah. like the headmistress because she can tell by the snoring. Mm-hmm. And then at the end here, where we're talking about this climactic scene, you can see on the other side of the sheet and there's someone in a bed and she's going to go and she she pulls the, the sheet back and there's no one there. But then you realize it's like... Then know, like the lightning strikes and she's seeing, outside, the, ref- she's seeing the, the reflection of, of like, the light of, of, on the figure. On the figure. Can't see her. So she, it happens a couple times and it's and then it's very iconic like her. She's, she's got like a... She picks something up off the floor and she wants to stab it. And then Which the, I think is a nod to the bird with crystal plumage because it's a statue of a bird. Yeah. With like these crystal... Oh, the, the thingies. Like it's almost plumage. like it's a... Yeah. So of, he's, of he's a giving a little shout out to himself. Yeah, and because she picks up one of those quills. Yeah, you know that's made out of you know like crystal or something. Yeah, and she's going to go uses as a weapon. And then she's she's standing. That's the very iconic image where she's standing there like ready to go. And then 
behind her, a door opens and her dead friend comes out, trying to kill him. Ah, possessed killer, yeah. And then she, then she turns the, the, our lead and she stabs the outline of, of where somebody should be sitting. And she hits this witch that then materializes this really old agent. They said they used a ninety-year-old ex-hooker who went on build or unaccredited yeah. uh, in makeup. And then as soon as she stabs th- this head witch in the, through the throat. Everything starts falling apart. Everything starts blowing up. And then when she's making her way out, she makes her way out. She looks down the hall at the room where all the headmistress and everybody was. They're, like, feigning, uh, screaming in the same yeah, it's area. It's almost like you see, like, in a in a space movie where, like, the airlock, they're losing the air. Yeah, everyone's... <laughs> they do yeah. see, like, this, like, wind, and it looks like they're suffocating. Yeah, so, like, it's almost like she, she stabbed the one witch in the throat. Everybody's feeling so because Then the, the, the servant that, that's mute with the teeth, he's on the ground bleeding out. The headmistress is screaming, and then everything starts exploding at the same time, and she's able to just make it out before the whole house goes up in flames, yeah. and the whole thing just, you know, goes back to hell. And then she makes it out, and she's just wa- then she just walks away, like, laughing. Yeah. It's like, I thought she'd had the cab will be there waiting for her. Like, you ready to go back? <laughs> you know, yeah, she just, it, it's almost credit, like she made it out tonight. And then you get my favorite Argento credit that happens, fre- not frequently, but at least a few times that it was like, you have been watching Suspiria. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's, so it, it's just a, such a, it's a surreal movie that now is getting, a, finally getting a remake, although the, the, the new director says it's, it's a personal interpretation because you can't yeah. remake this and. They've been talking all the way since like 2008 about remaking this with Natalie Portman, and then that kind of fell by the wayside. That that kind of stalled, and then they were going to do it with the girl, the girl from Orphan. Okay, or or there's something wrong with Esther, as yeah. I like to call it. Yeah, uh, there was, that takes she, place in Hamden. <laughs> she, yeah, well, yeah, Hamden. Yeah, and then she was attached to it for a while, and then that didn't happen. And now it's what's her face, uh, Dakota, Dakota Johnson. F- Johnson, yeah, yeah, the um, Melanie Griffith and Don Johnson, who I guess supposedly I've heard is was growing up was very into dancing and you know she ballet and she did a lot of that stuff, so she may be perfect yeah. for the role. As well as the director said, he took a lot of time to go study dancing, so it's be interesting to see once this now materializes. You know, the nod that's going to be to the Argento original, how it's going to yeah. be. You know, is it going to be held up against the original and what? Avenues it's going to take. I haven't seen a trailer for it. I don't know if I saw. I did see the trailer. Okay, I haven't seen it. It was kind of more of a teaser. I don't think there was any dialogue. It was just music and visuals. But I will say, you know, uh, uh, to wrap up, a couple of things just about the score since the score has become so kind of iconic in its own right. Used in Hong Kong cinema, you know, and what's his face? Uh, The hell's our guy's name there that that we brought up, I think, this year for. on um, when we were talking about in, in Kung Fu February, didn't you bring up um, uh, what's his name? I don't know. I don't know either. Um, uh, Ying Wing. Didn't you bring? Uh, oh, Yuan Wu Peng. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, because he did. Uh, he was the one that. I think directed the original Drunken Master. Yeah, and he was the one that did the choreography for things like The Matrix and Crouching Tiger, yeah. and Dragon. So they they sampled some of the original score in that. I mean, a couple hip hop um, uh, people like Ghostface Killer have used this in in different forms. Uh, but I, you know, just because uh, I've heard Simonetti say this is like the quintessential Goblin score, and and it's one of their favorites when you hear any of the band talk about it. But it really is not the quintessential. Goblin score in that, like this score is unlike anything else they ever did. 
You know, like to say to say that this is the sound of Goblin, it's not. It's the sound of Suspiria. You know, they and they uh, incorporate a lot of kind of like uh, ethnic instruments. The Greek bazooki, which is kind of a Greek mandolin. Yeah, big. It's big. Yeah, you yeah. Know, they say African. to them it was like because Marcos is kind of a Greek name and. Uh, the the tabla and these African drums they don't use a, like a regular drum set. All the percussion is more of an ethnic uh, p- persuasion. Yeah, <laughs> you know it's like more tri- a much more tribal sound, and there's a lot of like timpanis. And that goes and to the idea and, of uh, you know having a seance or a ceremony or like like more akin to like African voodoo, you yeah. know that kind of hoodoo, you know that kind of thing. And the use of voices, not just the Claudio Seminani voice of like witch and all that stuff, but the Massimo Morante howling voices during the I think the track witch is the name of the track on the soundtrack. Uh, and then of course there's um, I lost my train of thought. Oh, and then they also experiment with other things like crackling plastic cups up against them, like next to the microphone, pound, like hitting uh, buckets that are full of water. That might get that boom. I mean, yeah, you know, like, you know like it's all this, a unique. It's it's their most experimental score. It not all of it is completely like experimental and avant garde. There are tracks that sound more like progressive rock, but this soundtrack is unlike anything else Goblin has ever done. Yeah. And because, partially it's because they had so much time. With Suspir, I mean, with Profundo Rosso, with Deep Red, they only had like two weeks or something. Uh, that's more, is that more jam bandy? Like that's jazz? Yeah, it's much yeah. more progressive rock. Yeah, yeah. Whereas they worked Jazzy. on Suspiria for months, from yeah. before it started shooting, till by the time Profundo Rosso came out, uh, the album, Profundo. The, the, the Deep Red soundtrack is called Profundo Rosso because that's the name of the record. Uh, the soundtrack album, which was a huge hit. So Co- commercially, you're saying, yeah, yeah, like commercially, a, like, like it charted. made a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, like it. It was like it was a huge, like you know, Billboard equivalent for Italy. Yeah, charts. So uh, then they did an album called Roller, yeah. which is much more in the vein of Deep Red. Although God, it's not, all goblin, although yeah. it's not a soundtrack, it's just an album. But uh, which didn't fare as well, but as Profundo Rosso did. But coming on to Suspiria, having it be another Argento soundtrack, I think there were high hopes that this could be another hit. Yeah. So it was kind of like money was not an object. They got, they were free to be in the studio for as long as they wanted. And they were doing this experimentation. And that I think you because know. of the amount of time they had they were comfortable with taking a lot of that time to experiment with different sounds that weren't necessarily coming from instruments or experimenting with all these other instruments that don't typically get used. Yeah. So I think this is an instance, you know, we say restriction. I often say restriction can, you know, like breed, you know, more creativity. This is an instance where like time and endless resources did pay off for a script, yeah. that, for a soundtrack that is now, you know, considered one of the great soundtracks of all time always considered like number two of the greatest horror movie soundtracks behind Halloween and most lists of that sort uh, and it is half the movie this, yeah. you know it's the way Suspiria is married to image when the music of Suspiria is married to the image of Suspiria is 
unlike most movies. Yeah. Like it really is half of the effectiveness of how, how of of whatever it's evoking in the audience. It's coming from the music as much as it's coming from those crazy, lush, colorful images. Yeah. It's really like this beautiful uh, concophony of uh, sound and uh, and visuals and light and, you know, drama and everything. It's really this visceral exploration of this insane, surrealist world that Argent that you know that originated from various different sources like we talked about in the inspiration but all through that lens of Dario Argento's like mind (laughs) into a masterpiece that really could never be remade yeah can only be reinterpreted from somebody else's lens yeah uh and, and hopefully the remake is good. I mean, I think it looks promising. I think it's smart to say we can't do what Argento did. We can't redo. No other filmmaker could make Suspiria, the Argento Suspiria. So let's not try to make some bastardized version of that. Let's take this simple concept of a, da- a dancer who finds herself in this world of the dark arts and, and, and I'm guessing witchcraft and see how we can make a movie with that premise yeah. and make our own what appears to be visually interesting and kind of edgy interpretation of it. Yeah. But Argento really, this is, although it's not my favorite Argento movie, it's hard to deny the power of it. And like I was saying, if art for, for a filmmaker is this balance between intuition and technical know-how this would be the movie that you would point to where it's like the 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 blocks the columns have aligned perfectly yeah. in something that uh is probably more popular now than it was than it's ever been yeah and you like you said it's not for everybody it's hard it's either i don't know if you love it or you hate it but it's certainly you know it's almost it could be almost be an acquired taste you know, yeah, I feel or like you have to be in the right mood yeah, to kind of. It's not for everybody. Yeah, but for the people that it does speak to, yeah, it garners a very passionate audience. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and it's groundbreaking. It's it's you know I, I mean it's it it became one of his most. They came here. What did they do? They cut eight minutes out of it. Fox, 20th Century Fox, got it. They put it out. They cut twenty uh, eight minutes out to get an R rating here, and it and it, it was a big enough hit here that I think it was like fo- some studio, here in the states. Like Inferno is like a, the sequel to this is like a studio picture. Yeah, you know, it was a big enough hit that some American studio was like, okay, yeah, do the, throw some money at do it. another one. <laughs> yeah, and we'll be able to get something off of it. Yeah, of course. Um. So yeah, I, I think it's definitely something that people should, uh, you know, hopefully have seen or know of, and especially with the new one coming out now. Well, I think most of uh, our listeners have at least heard of it. Yeah, um, if not, have already seen it. In if not, have already seen it a million times. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. It's it's it's, it's right uh, up their alley. And then it closes out our um, our our October horror movie extravaganza, which was which like we said at the beginning, it just seemed like it flew by. Maybe because we were just. Um, you know, we had so much else going on, and then it just... You just, got your book coming out. I got my book coming out. You have your book out. I'm now starting the sequel. Oh, you um, are? 
Uh, I'm just waiting for the contract to arrive in the mail, but I think I'm safe to say that uh, I am now doing Scored to Death Volume 2 or Part 2. We don't know exactly what we're going to call it yet. Oh, that's awesome. But uh, I'm now uh, starting the second installment into the Scored to Death series of wow. books. So, uh, that's so definitely things exciting. Have, things have been busy yeah. for us both uh, outside of the podcast. Yeah, and I've got my book coming out uh, December the 4th of 2018. Uh, Blood in the Streets. It's available for pre-order now on Amazon. Uh, it's going to be in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Uh, if you if you like uh, crime thrillers, if you like detective fiction, if you like historical fiction, if you like Dion, if you like Dion, if you like gritty '70s movies, you know uh, it's right up your alley. It's it's a it's a it's a thriller. Uh, I've already pre-ordered mine. So oh, I that's hope nice. Everybody else pre-orders and I've pre-ordered too. myself a copy too to say that I supported <laughs> myself. So uh, yeah, so December the it's a Tuesday. Blood in the Streets is coming out. Uh, check that out on Amazon. Uh, please go pre-order that, uh, whatever your tastes may be. If you like digital copies, if you want to just listen to it, or if you want to have the old-fashioned, like I prefer, the paperback, the, the physical so copy. Dog, yeah, ear it. Dog ear it and tear stuff out and, and make notes. I don't like this. This sucks. <laughs> Sit on the you toilet. Know. Yeah, and then you, you know, you can, you can I, and I'd love to hear what you guys, everyone out there thinks of it once it comes out. And, uh, uh, that's very exciting. And then Blake already has his first book, Scored to Death. Conversations with some of Har's greatest composers, also available on Amazon in paperback and uh, ebook and Kindle edition. Uh, not an audiobook, but uh, if you want some audio uh, Scored to Death, you can listen to the podcast, Scored yeah. to Death, the podcast, which is available on iTunes, Stitcher, also uh, SoundCloud, YouTube, uh, most places you get podcasts, new interviews with composers that aren't in the book. And right now, uh, as we're finishing out October, we got Halloween in just a couple of days. Both the installments of my Halloween special are already out on Score to Death, the podcast, where I talk in-depth with composer Alan Howarth about his contributions to the Halloween film series. Yeah, and then to reiterate... uh Blake had gone on uh, for Night of Living Dead on Four Brains and One... uh, Four Brains, One Movie? Yep. uh, Where I sat in with uh, Bradley and Dan from that podcast, but uh, S.A. Bradley from the Hellbed for Horror podcast came and guested, and I've done his podcast before, too. So uh, it's an interesting conversation about Night of Living Dead, which is a good, obviously a good companion piece to the Dawn of the Dead podcast that we did last week. And then uh, also with this, too, you have the... Three, the Three Mothers podcast from a couple of years ago with um, James Hancock from Wrong, Wrong Reel. Reel. Yep. But that's that's here on Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers yeah. uh, Airways. Our, our site. So yeah, yeah, check that out because uh, then you'll get a little bit of, you'll get a little bit of overlap of some of the things, but then you'll get to hear a little more discussion about Inferno and uh, the Mother of Tears. Yeah, and the then sequels to this movie. Go back and check our our Deep Red Profundo Rosso cast out and uh, our Giallo. Sidecast. I don't know where that is, if that's on Podwitz or if that's on Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. But um, you could check us out on Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Uh, we're now on clnsmedia.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've partnered with them. We're doing some great things. If you go to clnsmedia.com. And we uh, thank them because that's the, they're the reason why we have sponsors. Yeah, we have sponsors now. So, so of um, course, we need to thank our sponsors. Yep. Thank TiVo this week for uh, helping us out with this podcast. And, uh, you know, you can go out, check us out on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, like our stuff, retweet us, message us, talk to us, suggest movies you want to hear. We have our regular site, 
Saturday night movie sleepovers. You can check out extra site extras there, bios about us, other things like that. Yada, Our yada, back catalog. Yada, yada, and um, <laughs> we'll be back, what, next week or in two weeks I maybe? Think it's, I think we're going two weeks. Yeah. Uh, it's weird because because we do the four episodes in October or, or an episode a week in October, it sometimes throws the... The regular cycle yeah, because the rotation. we don't want to do another one next week so we'll probably do it in two weeks we're yeah or maybe we'll have a special you know you know you have to just say you never know you never know what's going on i know people have been working to get back on our cast some people want to come actually record. there might be something i want to run something by yeah you know, Ooh. that maybe we can post before yeah. our next official episode so there you go but so you never know i'm not making any promises yeah so and then we'll be back to november you know we'll have uh our back to our bi-weekly schedule uh for november and december and before you know it we're at christmas time and then we're back and we're in 2019 you know, so uh, we got some very exciting things going on. So very, flew very by, fun. man. I know. I don't know what the hell's going on. <laughs> you know. Uh, so yeah. So check out. Blake's we'll have to see. Maybe now that Dion will have a book, maybe we'll hit the convention circuit. Oh yeah. Which I wasn't going to do anymore, but maybe that Dion's got something to yeah to hawk. I'll be hawking <laughs> my my. Uh, we can have a signing with Dion at Monster Mania or something. Yeah, we'll see. My crime thriller to see if anybody at horror conventions are going to want to sign the thing. But I've got Blood in the Streets, December the fourth. Uh, it's on pre-order for Amazon. Blake's got his on Amazon, scored to death, and he's got his podcast scored to death as well. You can check out. Uh, please check all those out. And you know what? Before you know it, we'll be back right with you. If you uh, can't wait that long, please check out our back catalog because we got a crap load of stuff already. We've got over, Jesus, I think now 135, 140 episodes of various, Getting there. mostly movies and stuff like that. celebrated an anniversary. You know? so. Yeah, and uh, a lot of people sometimes, well, not a lot, some people sometimes will suggest stuff to us that we've already done. And they're like, are you sure you did that? We're like, we're pretty sure we did that. So it, it, could, it could just be a conversation we had off yeah, mic. We don't, we sometimes sure, don't know. But we did. We're pretty so, sure. We uh, so please go back and check out our back catalog, especially from the early years. We have a lot of great stuff in there that we did that, you know, uh, some quintessential stuff that we love, uh, you know. Uh, and if you like our Halloween stuff, we've done other months of four in a row. So we got a crap load of, you know, stuff out there. Back catalog. So check that All right. out. All right. See you in a couple weeks. Later. Later.